Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Barber Shop. Today I have with me uh, Nishant and Sunish, founders of one of India's most successful homegrown private equity funds, Kedara Capital. Back in business school, you know, our professor looked just like you. <laughs> we wanted to name it Behind the Mountain Peak. So we wanted to outlast us. We always say bad news first to our investor. People have given us money because it's our fiduciary responsibility. So if there's something going wrong, they need to know. Most founders who've really done an exceptional job have been also very focused on talent and people themselves. There are very few people who can be pioneer, scaler, and factory owner at the same time. Maybe yeah. Bezos, maybe an Elon Musk, maybe. maybe Zuckerberg. Always recruit people who are smarter than you. Because what will happen is they will provide you the leverage and they will let you bring capabilities to the organization which will help you grow faster and faster. Like if you look at what Fogg did, right? Two massive giants and they just came out and said, only one point they said, you get more. See, the beauty is, I feel that if there is trust, then nothing else matters. And that's to me is what is the best part of this relationship. Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of The Barbershop. Uh, today I have with me uh, Nishant and Sunish, uh, founders of one of India's most successful uh, homegrown private equity funds, Kedara Capital. I've always heard about them from the outside. I'm meeting them from the, for, for the first time. But amongst the founder community, amongst the investor community, amongst the startup ecosystem, and amongst growth stage, uh, uh, both promoters, investors, and uh, management teams, Kedara has an absolutely stunning reputation of being a partner of choice. With investor in, investments in companies like Manyavar, Lenskart, and uh, you know, including like very established businesses like Parsons Packaging, uh, their first deal uh, uh, was in Mahindra Logistics and after that has just been uh, looking upwards. I'm very, very excited about going deep and understanding the world of private equity in India and how they see uh, Kedara going forward over the next decade or two. Sunish Nishan, welcome to the Barbershop. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming here. Uh, I know we took a round of the office before, uh, before we, we sat down for this. And one of the things that came out when we discussed as a yeah. preparation for this conversation was around around uh, uh, around culture which for private equity which is usually a smaller leaner team is not something which is mostly top of mind for Correct. for founders yeah but would love to kind of uh, hear your thoughts on that and what do you thought of the culture at bombay shaking up <laughs> the tenants that you that you work with i would say uh, let's start with the bombay shaving company <laughs> then 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 go into the kedara culture which we are extremely proud of. I would say what at least struck me as I walked through this was how charged up the team was, how motivated the team was, and how aligned the team was. And to see that in a startup is very, very refreshing. And very, very refreshing because if you see the startups that have succeeded, usually you'll find it's the team. There's no one individual that can create the success. And this is the same thing at Kidara. And, and I would love Nishant to talk through some of that. Um, so I think that's basically what we found was, at least I found, sorry, very, very unique and very, very interesting. So it at least it gave, like, I would say a sense of purpose and with a sense of belonging to the team. And I think when those two come together, I feel magic happens. Yeah. I think that's that's my first quick reaction. <laughs> I think I'll just make one preface, Shantanu. You know, uh, back in business school, uh, when we had our leadership class, you know, our professor looked just like you. Because <laughs> then now Scott Snook, okay, he had no hair also. And not that I held it against him. But you may, I think it did well for him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at that point I used to think, Tachi, Feely, culture stuff is, you know, really 
beyond you know people like us yeah. i couldn't really identify with it it was like you know hardcore numbers analytics excel and over time in the last i guess 20 years since i've graduated with the passage of time how important culture is in truly building something which is lasting has really you know dawned on me time and again both when we failed when we've succeeded and that's why i think when we started kedara for us culture was such a core ingredient of you know what we stand for when we walked through the always of you know bombay shaving company you know the fact that everyone can be themselves right everyone felt like they were pretty much sitting at home yeah and having you know conversations without really thinking twice just being yourself i think that's something which was quite quite evident yeah and uh, similarly i think from a kedara standpoint i think what we're trying to do is also build you know a uh, sense of psychological safety now yeah. right people feeling that they're at home we we haven't gotten to the level of liberation you guys have gotten to hopefully <laughs> we get there but just completely open offices yeah. and you know having dogs in the office having cats in the office which people have at home yeah uh but we're in the middle of i think like you said building something quite unique from a private equity context it's a low bar but you know uh, <laughs> from the point of view of just building truly a, a distinctive institution not just india but from a global standpoint tell me i want to actually dive deeper on this transition with over and you call it a 20 year transition which gives me a sense that it is a gradual one yeah where you go from being a 20 something and i know mckinsey kind of and we're all alums right yeah, yeah. it kind of uh for the right reasons yeah focuses on the hard aspects of business mm. initially right when you're associates or when you're kind of in the junior level hierarchy and the numbers matter details matter and it's ingrained and as over periods of time you and that's also a period when you kind of you're right you look down upon uh you know after as softer aspects is a transition to realizing that it's actually the softer aspects that make really long term um differences to institutions is that transition a gradual one for both of you and these may be different yeah. answers yeah, yeah. or are there moments over the last 20 years for each of you where it suddenly hit you that okay this there is something deeper here um it's a very very fascinating question actually and and i'm reflecting as i'm speaking i would say the one minor difference to what you're saying i would make is i feel people make the difference culture brings the people together and i think it gives them a purpose it gives them a belonging it gives them a belief so i think if you think about it we for example always look at cultural fit of course everybody wants smart people in private equity you want people who will take ownership and drive it but you don't want i me myself right you want we us and the team those are the kind of people that we feel would go ahead and do a lot of very very unique things that's why when you come into our office and hopefully next time we'll get you there and spend some time with our team you'll see it there is no politics people are all working together you don't have to tell anybody to deliver on stuff work on stuff they take the ownership and i think it's the quality of the people and is the culture which is like the it's the fluid running through the organization it's the blood running through the organization and i think that's where we always say that we don't care if xyz is the smartest person if he does not or he she does not fit we don't want those kind of people we want people who fit with our culture we want people who 
imbibing the culture and we are people who are culture carriers who will bring the next set of people and we spend a lot of time on recruitment getting the right people and the biggest thing we spend time on is cultural fit our guys are trained enough that they'll do all the analytics checks the capability checks that happens but a lot of time where the three of us spend is largely around cultural fit the kind of people that we are so i would say that's that's the way at least from my perspective i think about an organization and how you can build success in an organization for me shagnu you know when i started my investing journey at that point i was still trying to figure out whether this is the long term gig for me huh. um so for the first couple of years i remember when i interned in ga sunish was actually the one instrumental in kind of opening my eyes to investing right otherwise i had zero clue of what investing really meant kind of um and at that point in time i was just creating a model without really thinking through what is driving this model ultimately the people on the ground who are you know owning up a certain function or a responsibility they were the ones driving the numbers yeah. but there was just no appreciation of that linkage correct i was like you're building something you know in vacuum and then you know as i get got a little bit more experienced there was sort of for lack of a better word you know an investment that didn't go as per plan it was a failure for lack of a better word right and that was predominantly driven by you know not having chosen wisely the person to back right it was someone who essentially didn't follow through on their responsibility to their stakeholders us being one of them so you know some element of learning as you tasted some success but a big failure which at least personally made me realize that look eventually who you back is as important as what you back in our business and this who you back is a very subjective mysterious sort of exercise in judgment yeah so how do we you know as a team and how do i individually build some combination of art and science around it and that's when culture became one of the enablers of culture is nothing but a summation of all the people at the end of the day starting from the founders then as you add people either culture will accrete or it will dilute okay. you know and that's what we focus on how do we make the culture accretive and how does it keep evolving as a summation of all the people within the firm so some of this is just things that have you know evolved and dawned on us over time uh, but the, at least for me it was i'd say the first 3 years were a remarkable sort of inflection point in recognizing the value of software aspects and culture i usually i i, I always wonder whether and one of the classic examples for this is i don't know if you've seen the media mogul simon cowell is a judge on um the got talent and x factor i think he's a creator yeah. of all of these shows britain mm. got talent america's got that yeah. he's like the mean as that mm. like he's the owner of person and he kind of gets other people to judge with him i think you know he's gotten peers morgan and all yeah. these people but eventually he's a decision maker and he's brutal with people who come and prepare for months and years to come and present their talent on on television yeah uh until he became a dad mm. and that was a turning point immediately when mm. you saw him kind of he was and people know that he's got a great eye for mm. talent that he kind of he's a guy who found uh, uh harry styles and then oh again the name of the group uh I forget that I was just missing whether the world's largest pop group mm-hmm. before BTS was found by him and kind of backed by him and he's created them. 
So his eye for talent remained the same, but it got layered with a sense of empathy that came from one moment, which mm-hmm. was when he became being a father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that something you guys feel that when 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 that happens, that your ability to kind of be a leader of people, there's a significant change. I think it was definitely a change for sure. I mean, I think the level of responsibility and attachment and love that you feel for your kids. So I, I mean, I have an eight-year-old daughter, Kaya, and five-year-old son, Behan. Okay. And uh, so they're, you know, fairly young. And that's in some ways a good thing because, you know, when I was slogging it out as an associate, at that point in time, the only thing I could do was just slog. Yeah. So when they, when I, you know, when Sirish and I got married and we'd known each other for 10 years and we eventually had Kaya and Behan, I think it was a turning point in terms of sort of reflecting and uh, thinking through the responsibility towards them. But it was also, you know, it happened actually after Kedara was born. So in some ways, Kedara was a baby well before, you know, uh, yeah, K yeah. and Vihan. So in some ways, you know, Kedara has sort of been the first baby just purely from a chronological standpoint. <laughs> and therefore, the sense of responsibility actually dawned much earlier, at least in, in my case, you know, and Mehan's coming into our lives was actually a amplifier of that responsibility. Um, but uh, to a large extent, I think it's personally for me helped me be a lot calmer, patient, understand a lot of things that you know you can see. I mean, I think our, our parents say right, you see a lot of your own reflections in your kids. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you can see the good, the bad, the ugly part of your own personality <laughs> in in the way they behave with you, and that allows you to be a little calmer when you're dealing with difficult situations, you know, at the workplace. Um, so it, it has played its part, but I think in in just the way things played out for me chronologically, Kedara sort of you know became such an important responsibility and part of at least my being that I had to think about. How to raise this baby much before, you know, K.N. Mayan came into yeah. my life. Uh, it's a, for me, it wasn't the case, like Nishan said, because the babies came before Kidan. So, <laughs> two came before, the third one came. Okay. So, the older one is yeah, so Siddhant, he's 18, he's just going to college. Oh, wow. So, we're going through a very interesting time, which is tough for us, because he's the one who binds the family very well together. And the younger one, Antra, is 16. So, um, I, where is he going? Where is he going? He's going to Brown University. Oh, wow. So, he's he's quite excited. He's going there. Uh, so, he's going to, he thinks he's going to study economics and maths. We'll see what he's studying <laughs> once he gets there. That'll be interesting to see. So, I would say, when kids come into your life, a lot of people say it'll be a turning point. And I think I can describe it even better for my wife than I can for me. And I used to meet her. She's a children's book author. She used to work in the corporate world and then started writing books for children. Now she's 24 books published. Um, she used to, when we were expecting her first, she used to compare kids to dogs. Then when she would see somebody's kid doing that, she would say, my dog also does the same thing. She grew up with four dogs at any one point of time. And I used to tell her, say it, but say it softly to me. Don't say it to them. They may or may not like it. And I think she was always worried whether she'll be a great mom or not. Because I was always a, kids person because I grew up with my nieces and nephews growing, being born around me. And she was not. And I can tell you, she's the best mother one can imagine or my kids can hope for in terms of caring and 
So I think a switch turns on. And then you realize there's somebody you love unconditionally much more than you love anything else in the world. And you can do anything for them. But at the same time, you have to be very conscious around the values because that's the only thing you can leave with them, right? So you can say it's the culture at home or the values, whichever way you want to call it. And I think the focus around making sure that happens and they grow up, grow up, they will do masti, they will do some, they will test your limits to Nishan's point, they'll check and see what they can needle and how much they can needle. But as long as they grow up with good value systems, good beliefs, a good foundation of culture like that you've built on, you find that that makes you feel more proud. You feel much more proud of them than you ever feel about your own achievement. And I think that's why what Nishant was saying, we have three babies, each of us. The third one is Kedara, right? Yeah. What happens in Kedara, and that's why if you see, we didn't name the firm behind any of our names. We wanted to name it behind a mountain peak. So we wanted to outlast us. We are very clear that this is a legacy we are creating, which we have to leave for the next generation to take over. Not our next generation. People who work in Kidara, they have to take over and they have to run and build probably even better than what hopefully we leave for them. And I think that's to us the underlying philosophy, underlying belief. So yes, does it make you calmer when you have kids? I would say yes. But more than calmness, I feel it gives you a lot of responsibility. It gives you a sense of purpose. It tests you every day. It's an everyday testing. And you realize that, look, things will get better. Kids will show you emotion, but they also love you as much. As long as you create something beautiful, it gives a lot back to you. And I think that's what we're trying to create with Kedara and Netherlands. I do want to, like, I, I know a lot of people who are watching may not uh, fully know the story of Kedara. Uh, could you talk about what you wanted to build when you guys got together? This is what, 2011, 2012? Yes, end of 2011. 2011, right? Um, how was the market then? Because this is, it seems recent, but actually now if you think about it, it's like 12 years back, right? Um, someone told me this very interesting thing, that 2011 is closer to the dot-com boom than it is to today. It blew my mind. I was like, that is crazy. Because that's the year I graduated from college. Wow. I mean, you know, this seems like now. <laughs> but it just, like, it's just a good way of time. Yeah, right? time just flies. Uh, it, it, it absolutely flies. So, what was India like in 2011? What mm. was it like to, what were your backgrounds like? You guys so, obviously all worked together. Yeah. Um, why did you guys choose private equity uh, to build an institution? I know it's a loaded question with like a lot of parts to it. But if you guys could just kind of no, no. double click, it'll be like, well, I think it might be worth just talking about our journey together. Yes. I think that brings the whole thing. And maybe I can start with the journey together and Nishant will tell you how Kitara happened. So then you get a flavor of both sides. So both of us, as you know, are Delhi boys, right? Born and brought up in Delhi. So after business school, I joined McKinsey, same as you. I spent which, seven. Which business school was it? I am Calcutta. You are Calcutta. Oh, I am Calcutta. So I joined uh, McKinsey right after. Um, it was a small firm at that time, not as big as it is today. I think including our batch of 12, it was 42 people. Wow. And when I left them at the end of 2003, it was 110 people and we thought it was a big organization. And how long was that period? How long were you? Seven years. Wow. So in six and a half, nearly, nearly seven years. Um, and we worked together very closely at McKinsey. Um, Nishan joined in 2001 and he'll give you a little bit of his background, but very, very closely. Were you like an EM or? Yes, yes. You know, I was an EA, so she was the EM. No. <laughs> so that's how we worked together. Uh, but more than that, I think we just had a lot of fondness for each other, to be honest. I think it just clicked. 
I always give the story that in 2001, McKinsey, as you know, like any other organization, was in a tough spot, and and uh, there were very few active clients, and I just happened to be serving one of the active clients in in Hyderabad, and Nishant was staffed. We were four staffed with players. <laughs> Mishab was staffed and he was in Delhi and he would keep calling, give me some work, give me some work. Why have you been forced to take this people? And his persistence was just insane. Mm. And I think just the kind of person he was, a humble, down-to-earth human being. We just hit it off really well. And that's how it started, mm. our, our working together. And I've seen him the same, same humble, down-to-earth, very simple in his views and beliefs. So that's where the friendship started. And a lot of people think that we are brothers because it's certainly yeah, the same. That's what I thought because I thought I <laughs> don't know what you say. So you're not actually brothers, but but yeah. like brothers basically. Yeah. Like he's seen my he's probably my kids have played more with him than probably anybody else. Wow. So they've seen him grow up. They're extremely fond of him. So it's it's literally like family all through. So then um we worked together for a couple of years. Then we went our separate ways. Uh Nishan went to Gates Foundation. He was part of the founding team. Oh, I was in the show in search of Karvinder Kaur. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> that is quite that's incredible. Actually, my wife works on the Gates Foundation. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. Okay. She ah. hence the entire sanitation uh, oh, investments wow. for them for Asia. So it was one of the most sort of fun and you know learning times because from a BA in McKinsey to being a program associate in Gates Foundation, working with actually. Uh, really, really bright McKinsey people. Yeah, but well, Shivanshu with was Shivanshu was there. Yes, Shivanshu we yeah, of us actually joined together. Shivanshu and your batchmates. Yeah, we were uh, flatmates in uh, in Boston in HBS together. Oh wow, with a very, very dear friend. Wow, very. And again, a hum- amazing human thing. Yeah, we don't work Yeah, and so then I left at the end of 2003 and got into private equity, but it was by chance. I just got called from General Atlantic. Which had just started the India office. I was the second Indian employee there, third overall employee. Then moved one guy from another office, and uh, I still remember. I didn't know what private equity was. I got this offer. I was traveling like crazy in McKinsey. At those days, we used to go Monday morning, come back Friday night, uh, and barely did much work in Delhi. Used to travel all over the place, and I got a call. I interviewed with them. They liked me, and I called a, a, a colleague of ours from McKinsey who was at that time with Bobak. Nitin Manan and asked him, what do you think about private equity? Are you liking it? Do you like this firm? Do you know General Atlantic? And he's the one who helped me make that choice. So I joined General Atlantic at the end of 2003, start of 2004, after one month of uh, leave from McKinsey. And then again, we worked together at General Atlantic. Took a little you were at the business school. Yes, during the business school, school that convinced him to do part of his summers with us at General Atlantic. So as you can see, we're very, very fond of him. <laughs> At that time, he wanted to do biotech. He'll tell you how his notes were evolving. But then we started working together. And from then onwards, always together. Uh, so I would say 2006 uh, onwards, everything together. So pretty much all our private equity lives, I would say, is together. That, that's that's basically what we've been doing. So yeah, maybe I'll just add to, yeah. you know, a little bit of, I'll fill in some of the, you know, we keep joking between us whenever one of us introduces you know, ourselves, it makes the other guy's job so much easier. Yeah. In financial terms, like you get operating leverage on introduction. <laughs> but uh, when we did a prep call, so you were in a car. Yeah. And like, good, so he's a thing. If I lose the ground, you guys want to do that. Exactly. So, so much together, no? Yeah. 
Now we complete can each other's sentences together. So, you know, it's, it's just as you saw, we just finished that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, like Sarish grew up in Delhi, and I ended up uh, so belonged to a family of teachers. My mom, uh, you know, was a primary school teacher, and she was an all-rounder, both at work and at home. Would do everything. My dad was a Hindi and Sanskrit teacher. So while I've lost touch with should Hindi and Sanskrit, but in some ways, both of them have had a really, really big impression on me. And then I have three older sisters. Very, you know, big difference. My older sister is twelve years older. She's a doctor. Then the younger one is ten years older. She's a teacher. Then six years older again. She's a teacher. And therefore, so a sort of a heavy form. Yes, very did teacher you, heavy. Did they teach at the same school you went to? No, they didn't. Because I've always seen kids who have teacher parents like kind of stricter academically a lot more disciplined. Was that something that played in? I was. I mean, I guess it was a combination. They were, you know, I guess differing forces. Because I was the youngest in the family, you know, by parents. So my mom would get teased that there was an eternal quest for a son. That I have a fourth kid. So the impression was I was pampered. But obviously, my father was very strict. He would be, you know, like I would get whacked around if I misbehaved in any way. But then. You know, there was a switch that came on when I became older, when he became so fond. So, sort of seen that entire journey. But I've always been, you know, really. He was one of the, you know, the warmest people uh, I know. So it's always sort of a lot of what is attributed to me is because of him. Mm. Um, but then, uh, you know, as I grew up, I realized Doctor Dubaski, any because I saw my sister, <laughs> you know. Training to be a doctor was really, really hard. And you were a, you were a kid in school and so on. Yeah. So then I said, "Kichalo, engineering try karte IIT, you know, happened. Uh, and midway through IIT, also realized that engineering is also not my calling. Which uh, year were you? Like this was, it was '96 to 2001. Oh, okay. Uh, when I was in IIT Delhi. Uh, um, but it was a like one of those you know seminal experiences. I think you know was very fortunate. And you, you always think about. Decision points in your life when you know either you make that call or just some power makes that call for you, and you're grateful for that path. So I mean, very grateful that I went to IIT Delhi, met a bunch of really really good people there. Didn't decide to pursue engineering, decided to pursue something in business and management. Again, was fortunate enough that I got an offer with McKinsey. I made it to the final rounds in Capital One. Deloitte rejected. McKinsey was the third option, and it just so happened that. You know, everything fell in place. And those two years were phenomenal, like Sunny said. Again, if I hadn't had the chance to work with him on that study, I think things would have been very different, right? Because we got an opportunity. And then since then, for the last 20 years, we worked together pretty much, other than the time I was in business school and Gate Foundation. So, very grateful for some of these opportunities because it could have been very different. And that would have led to me, you know, me to a very different path. It just, Somehow, luckily, I discovered investing. As he said, I was keen to pursue my story in business school was because I had done biochemical engineering, biotechnology. I, you know, worked a little bit in pharma in McKinsey with Gautam actually, yeah. and um, then Gates Foundation. The business school story was, you know, about healthcare and pursuing yeah. something in healthcare. So I was drinking my own Kool Aid, you know, <laughs> as a young twenty-five-year-old. Yeah. Then I went to business school, you know, thanks to him, got exposed to private equity, I still did an internship in a biotech firm. It was another matter that my, uh, you know, girlfriend at that time, Sirisha, she was also an IIT and it's almost like the story of two states with yeah. Chetan Bharat, <laughs> right? Uh, her father was a professor in IIT Delhi. She was oh, in she San Diego. Oh, he was. Oh. Yeah, I was in San Diego and I luckily got an internship in San Diego at Biogen IDEC, okay. uh, which was a, so 
I split my summer in GA and, and here and then, you know, decided eventually to, you know, join private equity initially in New York with GA and then move back to India. But if I, if Sunish hadn't pushed me at that time, I would have probably chosen to go in healthcare, which would have obviously, you know, turned out differently yes. uh, than this. But because I ended up getting pushed by certain, you know, people who I've always respected and admired a lot, it's, you know, it's something which is important because every time I realize and look back, some of these choices have been influenced by people you really uh, think highly of or you've learned from, right? And that's enabled me to sort of discover my passion, right? Investing is now something which is second nature, right? I feel it's such a privileged position to be in that position to back great entrepreneurs in Build, you know, taking good businesses into great institutions that stand the test of time. Being a partner of choice for talent that depends on us, you know, for, for people who give us money. So it's really some of those which I feel really grateful for. Tell me about this. This is this sound yeah. uh, a lot like, and whether there's another similar idea, both our mothers are also teachers. So it's yeah. so my home. <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of similarity. Yeah. Incredible. No wonder people think you guys are brothers. Yeah. No, but, uh, uh, I do want to talk about, and this is something that I think about a lot, which yeah. is co-founder relationships, like what makes them click and um, did you guys know when you guys are starting Kedan and, and do talk about Manish as well. Yeah, yeah. And Akron, did you, the three of you kind of start together or like yeah, yeah. one of you joined later on or, or did both All three of us started together. So talk about the co-founder relationships yeah. that, that were there in 2011 yeah. when you started. How did you, how did you decide this was a team that's going to do it hmm. and this is what we're going to do because this is what we see in the market. Like, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. No, so I think um, whose idea was it? Like the, yeah. one of the three of right? can't we like all three of you thought of it at the same time? Yeah, no, no, of course not. Maybe you can start switching and then I go. No, I would say first Manish also worked with us. The three of us worked together in McKinsey. Huh. So we all worked together in McKinsey. We knew each other. In so it was the AP on the same study. Yeah. So Manish was in AM and I was a B. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So we were all on the same study. <laughs> wow. So we worked very closely. And then interestingly, our offices when we were at GA and he was at Tamasa were in the same building. Which is where the McKinsey office was also Express Stars. So we were in the same building. So we used to meet often, talk often. And we had a very good personal relationship. Our three spouses are very close. So end up spending a lot of time together. So I think we had started talking way back in 2008, nine. That was interesting. Where do we see opportunities in India? Exchanging notes. It started more with exchanging notes and where could be some interesting thing. The infrastructure at that time was booming. We were talking about whether that is an interesting area. But what happened was the catalyst probably happened towards the end of 2010, where we started actually discussing more actively. That is this something that we want to do? From a perspective that there were very few homegrown Indian private equity firms, domestic private equity firms. And if you see any other market, there are a lot of domestic private equity firms, right? If you look at China, yeah. there are massive amounts of domestic private equity firms. US is all about that. Europe is all about that. Even Brazil has a lot of them. So our view was there is going to be a very interesting opportunity. Especially because the way the market is structured, you have an opportunity where you could do deals where the global funds may not want to do, just from a size, scale, or or mixed perspective. We felt there could be a very interesting opportunity. That was the genesis of this idea. 
how it came together frankly was more we just felt that let's do something together it was not as well thought through as it may come across now in hindsight and that time it was that there is an opportunity let's give it a shot worst case we go back and work with some other firm it was it wasn't like this is a business plan we are going to execute on this business plan etc etc it was honestly not that well thought through and i think if you had applied the classical mckinsey framework <laughs> we would have probably not done stayed yeah glued to our seats Correct. right because it was just so cushy you know uh we were privileged to be in you know firms like general tanning and tamasek great learning grounds phenomenal you know firms lot of you know really great investors to learn from so a lot of i think our training that we had in investing in particular i think we owe a lot to ga correct where we cut our teeth um <clears throat> but because ultimately even being that emotional we are you know sort of a balance of rational and emotional uh the fact that we didn't run a spreadsheet the fact that you know we didn't apply our over analytical mind and we said look this is an opportunity to do something entrepreneurial uh and like suni said honestly us time pe kuch clarity nahi thi ki you know will this even succeed will this even get off the ground yeah. so and coming from middle class backgrounds i think our thinking was honestly middle class in terms of now i think having gone through the distance we think very audaciously because we've covered that distance but us time honestly we didn't have the the gall to think very very big we said okay let's get this off the ground let's do something which we can truly call our own mm-hmm. and then we'll take baby steps at a time so you know at that point it was just saying ki india mein exits are very difficult it's largely a minority market with no real operational insights or expertise can we solve for that and people have generally kind of paid whatever they could haven't really been as disciplined on you know entry so disciplined on entry disciplined on exit and value creation in between Right. that was really sort of as simply ki usko us pe hum differentiate kar sakte hain mm-hmm. and that's how we started uh you know the concept of kedar was in fact we sort of left ga earlier we left ga end of september when mm-hmm. he i think joined in november i think yeah. right that's when he said so uh we'd obviously started everything was done and dusted just about executing that mm-hmm. and then um then we started we partnered with a global firm called clayton dubillier and rice which was also set up in 1978 it's like you know like a kkr or blackstone the same pedigree mm-hmm. people like jack welsh who were an operating partner there said ki instead of reinventing the wheel can we benefit from 40 plus years of learning and insight that could help us truly build a you know a similar firm in the indian context so that's how we started and what does that partnership mean like so does that mean that they were investors or so they they basically gave us you know uh their partner capital right which is essentially you know in in the private equity parlance you know we are a gp which yeah. is the people here manish the team right general so, partners yeah. uh, we contribute money in our funds they also contributed a part of that okay. through their partners okay right um, and then we have something called as carry which is sort of as we invest in businesses whatever profits are made 20% of that is the carry that gets distributed amongst the team correct um so that there is a you know a small share of that that goes to them as part of the arrangement okay right? but the idea is how do we truly operate as for all practical purposes one firm where we can leverage each other them also for expanding their portfolio into india looking at opportunities which we have an in india angle where we've also 
you know, been been helpful. So that's really the symbiotic sort of relationship that that existed. And also, they had a very deep learning and experience, like Nishant was saying, on the operating side. Okay. That's what we felt was India was at a stage and scale where that could add a lot of value to our portfolio. So when we started, a lot of people questioned, will buyouts happen in India? Because we went in saying that we want to do control a control-like situation. Who is it? That's what, in, in 2011, today it's parlance and everybody says India is a good buyout market, etc. Those times, those were some of the most important questions that were being asked of us. But we felt the market was changing. People were realizing if the next generation is not interested or wants to do something else, it's better to give them cash or create wealth for the family and let them do what they want because then they can at least prosper much better. So I think that learning was coming into the Indian ecosystem and the Indian entrepreneur system. And entrepreneurship was taking off. India was, you could see the the excitement slowly, slowly, slowly emerging. But we got a lot of questions around that. that would people be willing to sell large stakes to you? If they sell large stakes, how would you exit the business, etc.? And but we felt that was the right set of opportunity was differentiated, etc. And that's where we launched. Spent a lot of time. Actually, the firm got launched. Our firm got set up on 11-11-2011. So 11-11-11. Oh, wow. It just happened. We didn't plan it. It just <laughs> happened to be on that day. Yeah. Real start happened in 2012, but that's when we registered the firm. And then we started hiring people. And not just the three of us, the five people who pretty much started with us when the firm started in the next one year who joined us are all there today. Are you serious? All are there today. Not even one has left Kedar. That's why the foundation of culture on which we have built the firm where people feel that they have an opportunity to grow, they have opportunity to contribute and the opportunity to create value. There is very visible to them. And people, a lot of firms across sectors lose people. That's one thing we feel very proud of. That people enjoy coming to Kedara. It doesn't feel like work. They're very excited. They shoulder responsibilities for tough times for each other. And they celebrate each other's successes. When that starts happening, I feel a lot of positive things happen. And that's what I think is quite unique. It's quite like it's it's quite incredible because people who join early stage businesses uh, join for potential, Correct. right? They don't join for performance, which is current because there is none to boot. They have a very different DNA. Absolutely. To people who join, for example, who who join Kedara today. Today, yeah. And oftentimes, sometimes institutions grow faster than the initial team, mm-hmm. including founders. But in your case, like the eight of you. Yeah. The five plus the three of you yeah. have kind of stayed the course and grown with the which is quite, which is I think rare, right? It's very rare. It is private equity. Yeah. very rare. We're fortunate, it's I think. Very, very fortunate. I mean that uh, everyone's been together, and I think it's the case because there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of ownership, and people feel that you know everyone's sort of you know part owner of the firm, for lack of a better word, right? And people feel that look, we're building an institution that will stand the test of time. That institution is represented by the eight of us today, but 30 years later, it may be a different constellation of people. And at least our endeavor is to engineer for that, right? Because in most businesses, sometimes founders and the senior folks end up becoming uh, too focused on themselves without really programming the institution to be built for lasting success. Correct. So at least in our mind, we're very clear that we want to build Kedara for lasting success. And focus on hopefully, you know, whether any of us are there as founders or not, but Kedara sort of survives the best of time. Talk about your first deal together. 
So the first we deal with there was in a company called Mahindra Logistics. Okay. This was after quite a few deals that came close but didn't, didn't and close. They didn't close because you guys lost out in a competitive process? In some cases we lost mind. out on a competitive process. In some cases we were probably not that aggressive or that comfortable. In some cases the deal may not have come together. So while we started in 2012, we did our first close in October 2012. Our first deal only happened in March 2014. So it took a little bit of time to go rolling. After that, they happened very fast one after the other. So I think we were also probably getting a understanding or building comfort with each other, each other's style. Nishant and I had worked together, but from a private equity perspective, Manish and three of us or two of us and Manish and not worked together. The rest of the team had not worked together other than one person who came from General Atlantic, Parin, and one person who came from Tomasic Karthik. So I think there was a lot of getting comfortable with each other kind of a situation. But this was an interesting deal because this was largely a captive business to Mahindra. We felt we do a lot of thematic thinking around what is very interesting, where a lot of value can be created. And we felt that if India is to grow, logistics has to grow. There's no other way, especially e-commerce was beginning to take off. Yes. People were beginning to leverage all of that. And we felt that credible brands would create disproportionate value in that area. So it was a captive business largely doing Mahindra work. The 10% non-Mahindra work that they were doing was also largely for, like if they were sending uh, their Jeeps to Chennai, they would bring back cars from Chennai yeah. for somebody else, basically to make the assets utilization better. And of course, they had some third-party business, but very small. And we felt that that's a very, very powerful brand. On that, you could build a very credible third-party business, especially because it was an asset-light business. They had a lot of dedicated fleet, but they didn't own any of them, or very little of it. So we felt that the Underlying economics were very strong. ROC of the business was very good. Brand was very strong. So we could work with them to build a very attractive third-party business. So we carved, I mean, it was a third-party entity, but not a focused third-party entity. We brought it, worked with them, helped them strengthen the team, selectively did a little bit of M&A, grew the business along with them. The third-party business in the five years scaled roughly six times, seven times. Mahindra business, of course, provided a nice cushion to the whole thing, but that grew very rapidly. And then the business went public, triggered a very attractive price. We made a lot of money on that transaction. But it was a very good learning. Also to work with a group, showcase that we can build value, even in a large group. I think that set a good precedent for us to do the next set of few leads. I think, I mean, that was also an example when we, you know, we really worked as one team because there wasn't, like it wasn't like we had a lot of people. There yeah. probably How big was the firm at that time? maybe like eight or nine people, yeah. ten people, something like that. And uh, everyone was playing some role or the other, right? I mean, we were involved in you know uh, diligence. Anand, who you know led the deal, was doing a Gupta. bunch of things. Anand Gupta, he's an angel in art. I know. Yeah, of course. Yes. So he led that investment. Aman Gandhi was also one of our first sort of uh, team members. He joined us, you know, in February of 2012. He was involved. Karthik was involved. I was involved. So it was like everyone was playing a role or the other just to make sure that we get it over the line, right? And and that sort of spirit has continued, right? I mean, it's always been about, you know, being a team, right? Recognizing that, you know, investing is a team sport and not driven by individual brilliance. And I you know, talk about this in the context of a cricket team like you know New Zealand as a cricket team yeah it's truly a team yeah. right there isn't someone who outshines the other as a star they really come together from a Southie to sometimes a McCullum to sometimes a Williamson 
But in our cricket team, there are a lot of stars that adds to the volatility. Yeah, you know, of the performance in that. Right. So, to that extent, I think that that spirit, that value, that culture is kind of resonated right in the form of the way we operate as a team. Right, incredible. And just give a sense of the construct of that deal. Like, how did it come to you guys? How much did you deploy? Or how what percentage of your fund was it? And how do you, how did you guys make that decision? Did you guys partner with other fund as well? Go. So going forward, we did, but at that time, in you know, it was a relatively small investment, right? It was uh, uh, one of our. It was a five hundred odd million dollar fund, and this was less than ten percent of the fund. So about a you know forty million dollar deal, give or take, right? So small deal from that standpoint. But like Suni said, I think we were really we wanted to make sure that from a first fund perspective, we get everything right because we were trying to make sure that you know the investment process the investment strategy the returns all obviously from an intent perspective uh stack up um it was a minority investment so it was you know in the first one we did nine investments out of which uh you know i'd say uh what four or five were either joint control or control investments the remaining were minority investments so this was one of the minority yeah. investments uh significant minority where we took you know 27 uh you know 27 odd percent stake so to that extent uh i think it was a great uh experience in doing it from end to end we were also working with one of the most reputed groups yeah in the country in in mahindra's um and we were partnering with them in truly taking one of their unlisted businesses you know and helping them you know build a third party business so very unique situation it helped us then to really continue to build on that thematic thinking like logistics that sunish thought of you know when i talked to you about entry value right uh, at that point in time logistics was not as sexy an industry as it is today when delivery and so on and so forth so luckily we managed to get a relatively fair price for both the buyer and the seller um but we also built on that thinking saying look you know instead of the gold mine can be invest behind the shovels yeah for lack of a better word right so we did packaging after that as a team no parksins manjushri logistic manjushri yeah, yeah. yeah. so we kept building on that theme of how do we get the same underlying growth and momentum but not pay the 30 40x ebitda multiples that consumer companies end up getting traded at uh, which was something which helped us eventually deliver a really strong return and your on your other point how it was sourced it was a one on one negotiated deal we had identified the opportunity we spent time with the group we convinced them to give them credit they basically said look go convince the ceo that you can add value he wants you then let's agree on let's agree on some construct that makes sense so it wasn't a process that was being run it was a simple straightforward one on one negotiation and they felt that we could be the right partners and i think if you were to talk to them today they would probably tell you that we did contribute our fair share on that deal but it was a good exciting first journey learned a lot from them hopefully contributed a lot to them how 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 do you how do you contribute in a minority in a control situation i have yeah. but in a minority situation it's about exercising influence and intellectual exactly. uh kind of support right yeah. networks maybe um you know it's very interesting that you said a lot of people we always say look either it's relationship or respect that helps make change happen okay so relationship you build over a time 
respect comes if you have contributed or done something similar that's why they have a very strong pool of operating partners which are ceos who built some of the most interesting businesses in india admired businesses so that time there was one of these individuals sanjeev aga who still works with us was an operating partner who had taken two or three consumer businesses in tough situation and done a fantastic job he had turned around leo metal he had turned around vip and made huge gains there took on idea seller in a very tough situation from number 7 it went to number 3 created a huge amount of value there so he was involved with the deal he and i were on the board so he used to the ceo could see that he would add a lot of value wow so that helped get us the initial buying look in buy in to what we were saying and i think as we engaged with them helped help them on specific initiatives like building the management team improving systems and controls helping evaluate mna a lot of times we said no and some of them have turned out to be very good companies some of them we uh, dodged a bullet uh, but at the end of the day it was decision was ceos we never feel that we should do backseat driving we can give our recommendation our thinking why we are saying they have to decide whether it's yes or no it's their decision so we worked on that also and i think that's what helped us continue to grow the business of course we helped in business development we leverage our contacts all of that up but i would say if you really look at fundamentally where we helped was around strengthening the team strengthening the systems and controls selectively helping them on mna and business those are there and that team i would say runs whether it's minority or majority frankly we do this whether the company does not need help even if we are majority frankly we are the happiest either the company needs help and we can contribute we are the happiest so our view is that yeah i think like I you said influence is really the core driver right adding or trying to add value for the sake yeah. of checking a box or saying that we add value is honestly counterproductive correct so it's really horses for courses where each situation has a different set of priorities and sometimes what is working well doesn't need to be disturbed in any way right so there are situations where our involvement is just limited to you know let's say being on the board and really adding uh, our inputs as a board member but there are equally situations on the other end where we're involved in building out the full management team you know from the ceo to the cxos and then helping drive either organic growth i mean and so on but i think the the denominator in all of this shadru is the fact that we think of ourselves as thoughtful understanding partners we're going to stay through ups and downs because life is never a straight line it always goes through ups and downs and it's important to be together when the chips are down because whether you call it creative ideation or problem solving yeah eventually it requires collective thinking yeah. to really get out of that zone emotionally physically mentally in every which way yeah um so that's that's really been a common element i think you'll find there's a lot of unlike many other firms where there's a lot of focus on numbers analytics and so on there's a lot of focus on that plus softer aspects that drive those things right now yeah. so the unpeeling of the onion to say okay why does this you know what drives this ultimately numbers and analytics are driven by people and how they think about some of the stuff and it's a very simple philosophy i think that we that underpins what we do and we say use that and it works quite well which is do what is right for the business value gets clear yeah always focus on the business always focus on what is right for the business don't worry about if you have to do capex even in the year that you might be doing an emanator in do the capex don't don't worry yeah 
people try and cringe on stuff pull back on stuff it pays you multifold yeah because one who knows whether the deal goes through or not and therefore you don't want to start again after 12 months or 6 months etc second the buyer also knows right they are smart they know that you're doing it you're investing there or they will deduct that much amount as they think worth that's what we have always said do what is right for the business simple philosophies a little bit like what you have as you have talked through what you have built which is quite remarkable i think we try and do very very simple two three things we follow and that's what they've been they've been good for i that's what i think also right i think the investing community whether it's early stage venture capital or growth stage private equity um or even public market investors they're amongst the smartest people one because i think the recruiting pool is kind of world is but also i think because there is such a strong confluence of horizontal experience and vertical depth mm. right i feel entrepreneurs including myself i feel entrepreneurs don't leverage it as much as they can mm. um and i keep getting reminded of this over and over so i i have to force myself mm. to work with investors and it's not easy and my context is maybe different from your portfolio but uh often times entrepreneurs feel here investors se baat karenge to uh what if i disclose something mm. which the investor doesn't like Correct. what if i show a part of my yeah repertoire of insecurity or vulnerability or karelia correct which the investor Correct. doesn't like so you kind of close the door and say okay my relationship with you is fiduciary and i'm i'm responsible for returns but don't look into the business deeper than you need to is sometimes a easy approach for entrepreneurs and often times you're tempted to but yeah. what i tell you where i've used mm. my investors right so for example toshan and harpreet Harvey is the founder of CoCubes. Uh-huh. Okay. Sold to Aon Ewert. Yeah. He wrote that he wrote wrote that book called Let's Build a Company. Yeah. I know Harpreet is the one connected to Anand by the way. I didn't know my friend. Okay. So Harpreet and Toshan did my first three or four people evaluations. Yeah. I told Toshan you head the people committee in McKinsey to please come and spend one day or quarter with Harpreet. So all the you know uh, reviews I everyone wrote their own review of themselves yeah. and you know the criteria. EPR uh, version correct got them to do that yeah. then arjun who sits on our board from record side uh, uh is was to was the one who launched gillette guard in india oh wow. so i was like hey, this is cool man i was i got arjun to start working with our team to do our razor launches this year and he has been just phenomenal because mm. the insights he brings on the table i don't think we would have gotten through any amount of problem solving or you know our own fundamental first principles yeah. right the third thing is we now have a leadership team of around 10 20 people mm. all of whom need executive coaching mm. including myself and i'm like boss 27 mckinsey partners who do this for a living mm. on our cap table were more than happy to engage i've gotten vikas badoria toshan kumra mm. like all of these guys who would you know charge and you know i'm gonna like i would never gonna access <laughs> yeah, correct going to spend like so toshan for example helps my ceo with communication as a specific hmm. you know hey i'm like you, you you need to work on verbal non verbal hmm. everything right and they've got to be really, the good part is for the coaching is great yeah but it makes the investor group and the leadership team very okay. close together correct and i think that's far more valuable to do anything else and i'm like boss there is so much for everyone now i meet founders and all i'm like you have to find ways because if investors are just spending time on making deals and making money for their investors that's great 
I think the founder community loses out significantly. We're not able to leverage them for their intellect, experience, and all of that stuff. So I think people need to view us as a partnership, yeah. and I think that's when you start viewing it as a partnership. And in every partnership, there's always ups and downs, tough times, etc. But you work together, you keep moving up. And I think that's where I find that that's what we tell our guys that where we invest, look, we are there to help. You don't need our help. we would be the happiest but if we can help we would definitely want to and then the other thing we always tell them we'll tell you what we believe but when we walk out of the room it will be one voice yeah because that's the other thing which is very important when you walk out of the room you have to be one voice it can't be an investor's voice is different than a management voice than a founder's voice when you open the door of the boardroom it's one voice you can have all your debates all your discussions all your thing because at the end of the day company can't go in three different directions it will only go down there Okay. Has to go in one direction. Now that direction may have a very bumpy path, may have a little bit of a bumpy path. Smooth paths though won't be there. <laughs> so it depends on where you would go. So I think that's the philosophy, very simple philosophy that we follow, and that's why I always said, do what is right for the business. We always keep saying that. And business comes first. Business comes. I think, like you said, I mean, it's a, it's a, ultimately, you know, it's a two-way street. Yeah. Right. You took the initiative of. really engaging your investors with your team right and ultimately you know we end up obviously given it's a two way street we end up having to uh, defer that to this confluence for lack of a better word i think um, there are situations where we're really deeply involved and in really leveraging uh, the strengths that we bring to the table yeah. uh, as well as what you know sometimes the other way around comes up because it's a And you said when you get close, it's a two-way street, right? Yeah. You can also share stuff, and you can get advice okay. the other way around as well. Um, and that's something which I think uh, we've tried to, at least in our minds, program as much as possible. Saying, look, here's the four or five things that we think we're good at, but also equally recognizing these are our limitations, right? Most of us, some of us have had some operating roles, but most of us haven't been operators, right? But we have the benefit of people like Sanjeev and Pramod and Govind and Aditya and so on, other operating partners who run really large businesses. So we try and complement that and offer that to to our founders and to our management teams. But it's important to also acknowledge the limitations, what we can't do well or what we don't know well, and therefore focus only on what we think we can truly help in knocking out of the park. Right. So just clarifying that in terms of building systems and processes, like Sanjeev was saying. you know enhancing management capability in bandwidth right helping with certain introductions you know really helping on the culture and sort of team side right which is related to the management part but really just focusing on those areas as the needle movers as opposed to trying to you know uh, look at a much larger set of things a founder i won't name him because it becomes it will become problematic at probably ki yaar Investor, maybe maybe there's an early stage yeah. versus late stage maturity thing. He said that early stage investors go company jada mat dikhao because they want to invest in promise. Right. And investors as a as a community are generally risk averse. He says that they're they're looking for reasons to reject, mm-hmm. and that's fine. That's just the way they are. But when an investor comes on board, and you sometimes are banking on them to for your next round, right. they're your Series A investors, but they appreciate for the Series B. Don't show too much to them, because then you should you should keep the first date charm on as long as possible. Mm. 
because the relationship is not going to culminate yeah. for a while and honestly businesses have just have a lot of mess and sometimes the mess like investors don't have the maturity to look beyond the mess and then like it's just red flags all over the place and then backing you again becomes much harder um but do you guys agree with that as a as a as a as a characterization for gravity would be perspective or investment that is the distinction that we have made i think clearly but yes so i would say see at the end of the day you have to think about both parties are on the same side not opposite sir correct my view is we always even to our investor maybe we'll start there we always say bad news first to our investor people have given us money because it's our fiduciary responsibility so if there's something going wrong they need to know we don't want to hide it we don't want to thing is so our view is always bad news first and good news can follow that's much harder said than done it is much harder but you will be surprised if you will talk to our investor they'll tell you we follow it quite actively now the challenge that happens when you are running a company you probably have a lot of lot more challenges in a private equity scenario it's probably a little bit easier on that dimension so our view is always treat them as partners and problem solvers if they are going to just come and give you the money then frankly you have to think if this is the right set of investors you want on your captive i think that's the first fundamental question you have to ask if that's all you're looking for then frankly most people will just go for value maximization color of money is green it does not matter there are people who have leveraged investors and done a beautiful job of it they have thought about who do they want on their captive who is the one who can add a lot of value a little bit like when you brought in a couple of strategics right they can add a lot of value from multiple dimensions if you think through it a little bit more actively upfront it goes a much longer way that's why a lot of times the investors that are the most respected are never the investor that pay the highest or seldom are i won't say never seldom are the investor who pay the highest but these are the guys who help create who should be able to deliver more than the discount that you might be giving to correct. bring them on board in the value that they help you create correct and i think if you take that philosophy that's one thing a partnership it'll work much better now if you get into a mindset of hiding the only trouble you will have is every time you will have to hide a little bit more yeah. add a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more one will start eating you up you will start thinking twice on what you say when you say yeah the more open a relationship more transparent and transparent a relationship the better it is because the truth is any good investor knows that the path is always with some hiccups path is not a smooth path correct every smart investor knows there's no question they are fundamentally looking at what see think about it they are making a decision in your case even faster early stage even in private equity making a decision between 4 to 8 weeks maybe in some case assuming some of the diligence is already done you are backing the position in the industry hopefully a leadership position the entrepreneur the management team and the ability or the proven track record of execution in some cases very strong in some cases decent and you're saying okay can i take this and make it better and take a good business and make it better i think that's what you're backing so i think my personal view is more open in relationship better it is be comfortable that the path will be up and down a little bit and if the investor is not confident with that or not comfortable they are not the right investors view in any case yeah you know that's what i would say i think it's the difference between a transaction and a partnership yeah right a partnership has to be based on mutual trust yeah 
right? And uh, a transaction can be just a one-off based on negotiation, you win, I lose, zero-sum game type of... That's not the business, at least personally, I feel any investor is in, right? Whether it's an early-stage investor or a... Yes, the deal velocity is different. The level of information is not there, all of that. So you're really using a very different set of data points to make the judgment. But eventually, it's a partnership. It has to be based on trust. I think both sides are mature enough to realize that whatever happens before the investment is just a trailer. Right? It, it will never be the movie. The movie will play out post the investment. Right? And that happens both for the uh, investor and the founder and the team, right? Because in reality, that's to your point, the charm of the first date, whether it's a series of dates, it remains because you're kind of on your best behavior, generally speaking, right? For the whole period. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, both sides are doing diligence on each other at some level to saying, look, are, you know, are we meant to each other or not? But truly the real test is post investment when things become real, yeah. right? You start sort of, you get married and then you start, <laughs> you know, having yeah. your daily yeah. sort of, you know, uh, you get to know a lot yeah. more. It's yeah. live together, for lack of a better word, right? So, so to that extent, it helps if you know each other as well as you can. It'll never be 100%. Correct. But it just helps because then the path forward becomes that much easier, right? Otherwise, you feel like, look, either something has been withheld you know, or whatever, right? So at least our, like Sunisa, I fully endorse his point of view, is to really build it on trust and respect. And, uh, you know, both sides should have the maturity to to acknowledge that. If you don't, then I don't think that's a reflection on the, the you know, either side. It's just a reflection on specific either people or stage of maturity. The other thing is, once the deal happens, it's a marriage, keep in mind. Yeah. So the first date is translating in something which is much longer to for sure. So I think I would, my recommendation to everybody is trust the other side is also smart enough yeah. that they know. And if they're not, then frankly, maybe they're not the right investors for you in any case. We look, every successful startup has gone through some transition, version 2.0, version 3.0. I'm not even talking about private equity. I'm talking about startups. Okay. Look at how many times your brand business has gone yeah. through changes, right? Look at Naveen Tiwari, another guy that all of us know in Mobi, how many times that has gone through. Transition before it became in Mobi, etc. Every business goes through that. So I think that's a given. So getting good investors who understand it and take it as a true partnership. You're doing a marriage. Marriage needs adjustments on all sides for it too. Even if you've dated for 10 years before that, marriage is still very different. Right. So forget the first date. I'm saying even if you dated for 10 years, <laughs> living together is very different. I agree. What do the three of you realize, or the eight of you maybe, given that you know, guys did a lot of the first stuff together? Um, and maybe you can keep it to this relationship and then you can talk more about Manish and the, the larger team. Uh, stuff that you realized about each other, both good and bad, which you did not anticipate before starting Kidara together. Because that's the thing about even co-founder, yeah, yeah, you're in bed absolutely. together, right? So, Correct. You find out really um, like there are surprises, both good and bad. Uh, in your case, can yeah. you answer? No, no, absolutely. I mean, I think like Sunish was saying earlier, maybe I can start now. Sunish can add. While we are sort of, for lack of a better word, joined at the hip, right? And we truly, truly respect each other. But they're obviously we're different people, yeah. right? We're just function of nature and nurture. That equation is different for me and different for him. So there are times when we have a difference of opinion. But because there's mutual respect and trust, we always 
figure out a way to deal with that, right? Uh, but it's actually, you know, very helpful and refreshing to be able to have a no-holds-barred conversation, right? Without sort of feeling that the other person would feel bad about it. Or, you know, can I say this or not, right? To, that thought has never crossed, right? That's the element of, at least between us, psychological safety, right? One could argue whether that's extended all the way through the organization. Probably not. Yeah. But it's, it's you know, getting there. I think between the eight of us, again, very high degree of uh, psychological safety. Maybe, again, not to the level of 100% between us, but I think maybe 90 plus percent, at least if I had to put a number to it, where, you know, if I look at sort of, if we take, you know, our two examples, I think what I admire about Sunisha is his ability to connect with people. Right? He can really... Uh, charm the other person, really strike, uh, you know, a conversation, build in a matter of seconds, not even minutes, a great guy. And, you know, I've always tried to learn and adapt it to what, because I can't do that, right? It's just not something which I've been blessed with, right? But how can I learn from that and, you know, incorporate that in the way I'm trying to, you know, build relationships, right? So that's something which he's obviously also very, very analytical, very quick, you know, with with numbers, uh, very quick-witted. So all those are strengths which really help in building that. Uh, equally, I think um, there are times when, I mean, there's an element of, uh, you know, uh, a strong point of view, right? I mean, you know, uh, which... Both of us have actually, but I'm just saying, given we said, um, it does take time to, uh, you know, convince him to see the other side, right? Um, but there is complete openness in looking at that point of view. And depends also on if it's me telling him that I think he'll be more open. If it's someone who's probably not had the same level of trust and respect, it may be different, which I understand having sort of gone through this journey, right? So that is something which... Um, I think uh, is is one area. Um, with I think the rest of the team, it's obviously unique. It's different situations. But the interesting part is we're very complementary, right? Uh, if you have an aligned value system, then complementarity really helps. If the value system is not aligned, then complementarity is second order. Yeah. But if the value system is aligned, then complementarity around the fact that maybe I probably think a lot more about what drives people, the softer aspects... And, you know, sometimes that can translate into a certain level of, you know, uh, passion or aggression, right? Which I'm sure Sish will, you know, allude to because that's something which I get a lot from everyone, right? Sometimes this passion and aggression, the boundaries get blurred, right? Uh, and can be unreasonable at times. But uh, but that complementarity, you know, Barish is sort of, again, someone who sort of goes out and meets a lot of people, right? He's much more outward focused than inward focused in terms of his sort of style and approach, right? And and that's something which, uh, you know, similarly, if you look at the next five, each of them have their own strengths. Uh, but maybe I'll let Sarish yeah. first. I think there is point of view. I think the first thing I'll talk about us because I think that's an important element. See, the beauty is I feel that if there is trust, then nothing else matters. And that's to me is what is the best part of this relationship. Like I can get angry with him, he can get angry with me, he may not agree. We leave the room, you forget about it, there's no malintent, you know it was based on either passion or view or belief, etc. 
you don't even think about it frankly it doesn't even cross your mind you don't even remember it sometimes you go back and say oh ah we had that discussion we forgot about it etc let's just complete that discussion to me the truth is i don't have it with anybody else that's an absolute truth i don't have it with anybody else i think there are other people in the office that we are getting there with and i think over a period of time we'll get there with i know a bulk of the office like nishant said is 90% this is 100% This is hundred percent. There is absolutely no malintent. There is absolutely no malintent, and that to me, you feel blessed that you have that kind of a relationship. You really feel blessed because then you don't have to watch your back ever. Because in a co-founder, you don't want to have that situation. That's the worst part of the thing. And there's that never that situation. I, if something happens to me, I know he'll take care of my kids. He'll make sure the bill is executed. He'll make sure whatever needs to get to them. Frankly, even if it comes out of his own pocket, I know it'll happen. I don't even need to think about it. It's like won't even cross my mind, ever. So I think that to me is what makes this relationship special. Do we have arguments? Of course, whether it's deal related, people related, etc. And to me, that's very important. The worst thing you want is both of us start speaking the same language. That's the worst part. Yeah, but on fundamental intrinsics, you guys are in value system here. Rock solid. Exactly. That's what I would. And the, when has it ever been pushed? Has the envelope on that been pushed? Can we push on the margin? Like he might have a belief on somebody who might be better, or I might have a belief on somebody who's better. But it's never been that he thinks this guy should is the God's gift to mankind, and I think he's he should be fired. It's never been that. Extractum is always kind of. Insane. It's never been that extreme. You have to remember when you worked together for twenty two years, you know, right? <laughs> before he enters the room, I know what his mood is. Or before I enter the room, he knows what my mood is, and that's why the other beauty is nobody can play games between us. Nobody, they can try whatever they want. Nobody can play me up. And to me, not that anybody tries, but I'm just saying, even if somebody yeah. were to try, and you'll see when you spend time with the rest of the organization, you'll see why we feel so blessed. Why people stay for so long? Well, everybody knows we are moving in connection. So I think that to me is the the beauty of this relationship. And it's a fact. I don't have it with anybody else. I don't. I don't think I'll have it with anybody else. To be honest, at this level, I won't. I have people who are ninety percent there, etc., but not hundred percent. And maybe they'll get to ninety-five, ninety-nine, etc. But this is the benchmark to be seen. Um, in terms of what I feel, Vishan does exceptionally. I would say he, the focus that he brings, and how he can just. Narrow down and focus on something and getting done is exception. Like I can't. I need two, three things happening same time. I need to do one, then second, then third. Uh, that keeps me going. He can really focus down and say, "Look, I'll. This is one thing, and don't bother me. I want to get this done. I want to focus on it, get it done, which is very, very unique. Analytical skills, brilliance, etc. That's table stakes to me. That he has, of course. But to me, that's one thing that differentiates him. And second thing is the softer aspects is the. Like he's really done a phenomenal job in building the people side of the Kedara story, culture side of the Kedara story. He's done a very, very good job. He's taken the ownership and really driven it to a next level, where they are doing stuff today which I would say probably global private equity firms don't do. Who've been in existence for long. They are always thinking about the culture of the firm. How do we build the culture? How do we pay for or engage on the individual development of everybody, and say how they can each be successful. One of the most powerful things that I have kind of um, felt as a founder and realized it over a period of time, and something that McKinsey did beautifully was invest in success of people. Mm-hmm. And it just come, it, it's something that we say very flippantly. Someone, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll invest in your success. Yeah. Or 
we read in books and people talk mm. about it a lot. But actually doing it even 80% well mm. is one of the most incredible unlocks mm. that you will see in that person's true behavior, attitude, skill set, everything. And then most importantly, their attachment to the shared purpose. How do you do it at Kirara? When you say we invest yeah. in success, you do explicitly do it so people know that Nishan, Sunish and Manish want, like for example, you said multiple times that the constellation of leaders of Kedara might not be us in yeah. 15 years or 20 years. And that's usually an issue with with private equity yeah. or in general, any no, service form, right. which is partnership. Yeah, we've preached to others, but we don't follow <laughs> the industry. Or carrying this is concentrated yeah. at the top, yeah. just yeah. those 10 people, no, whatever. And, it, and that's fine. It is what to give you an example. First, let me answer your first question, then I'll answer your second question to the best. And I'm sure Nishant for that. To it. Do we invest in the success of the people? My view is that's the only reason they stay. Yes. Because these guys are very, very smart. A lot of people try and recruit people from Kedara. Seldom successful, if at all. Senior people, though, not successful. That's the reason because they feel they can build long-term careers. They feel that they have the opportunity to lead the firm. At some point, they really believe that we will step away. What are the tangible things that, 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 that indicate this? Like this? So I think, one, how far the carry is shared. So I would say not just... The investment team, our admin staff also gets carried. We are the only firm probably in the world that does it. And it makes a huge difference to them. Because that amount of money going to them and it's been starting distributed, they can basically send their kids to better schools, better colleges, or get safety in terms of slowly, slowly building a, a place for themselves. It creates a good safety net for them. That's why our admin staff is also very stable. A lot of people don't realize that. We seldom lose any of our admin staff also because they have been there. And the truth is, they make our life easy. But frankly, they know you, they know when you land in Delhi, what the same driver, if he shows up, he knows where your parents' house is, these are the five places you want to go to. You don't realize you save time, you save efficiency, and they know it, they will get it done. And that's what we feel that it's not just, you have to invest in the success of not just the top management, you have to invest in the success of people. And that's a philosophy that needs to go penetrate across the organization. That is generosity, that is... That is may not be expected, but once it happens, I think it it is just so powerful. It's like action speaks louder than words. Right? We, we don't talk don't, about we, it. We try and let the actions speak because sometimes disproportionate focus on words. I think we're <clears throat> obviously being in private equity, we have to speak, but we probably are a more listening organization than a talking organization if I had to index it. We also, you know, one of the things is most firms in private equity don't have what is called a people committee, right? We have a people committee, which was there pretty much since inception. I know I've led it from day one along with sort of, you know, in right now, Anand Tashe and, you know, our talent uh, director, Amita is on it. So the four of us, but we are thinking constantly. We meet every week thinking about how do we attract the best talent? How do we nurture them? How do we retain them? How do we develop them? We tried personally to, we have right now about 30 investing and operating you know, professionals spend half a day every Monday meeting each one of them. So every month you recycle, right? every, every month get through the entire set of people so you understand <laughs> what is on their mind, developing the way they should be, what is bothering them, how can we do things better, so right? Here, feedback, can we do something different, right? This time around we did a, you know, externally facilitated brainstorming exercise which is done annually and the result of that is, you know, we're going to be doing coaching with a lot of, you know, sort of our team members. So they will take on coaching because 
it's such an individual thing, right? I mean, each one has different set of development needs, priorities, strengths. How do you sort of, you know, uh, uh, prioritize that? We started doing spouse ret retreats last year. It was Gulmarg last year. This wow. year we'll go to Istanbul. We do an investment team retreat. Because I think sometimes, again, everything is predicated on a bond. Bonds just don't get formed over transactions. Yeah. They get formed over actually time outside of the transaction. So how do you find that time? Right. So some of that is what we've tried to program in a way where you really truly build long-term bonds and you know use that as a springboard to do great work. I remember when Ashutosh joined and Ashutosh has actually been very instrumental for Bombay Sharing Company in ways I don't think that he realizes. Sir Desai. Yeah, yeah, of course. So Ashutosh was at Lighthouse. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, and this is 2017. Hmm. When we were probably a 15 lakh per month business. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> I was very excited about us. Okay. Yeah. You know, we were at IMLA thought together and we must, uh, you know, we must evaluate and huh. I'm not sure. And all our investments except for the last one have happened like this with me hmm. just talking to some friend of mine or someone just coming to office or whatever. And Ashutosh put me in front of Mukund and uh, Sean and Mukund and Sachin, I guess. Sachin. I don't know what they're Just these two guys. And Mukund and I have remained good friends. We're also excellent in Zeno. And I told them the pitch or whatever. But dude, you're too small, man. You don't do that small. I thought, no, I was totally new. Yeah, but I just thought that it could be whatever. And that didn't happen. But Sean, I think, wanted to, but I didn't fit the thesis or whatever. And then then Mukund. Connected me to a guy called Cal Vaporee in New York, hmm. who then connected me to to Colgate, uh -huh. and that's how the Colgate deal happened. Wow, well, interesting! And I, and that was one of the most fundamentally like changing points for yeah. for the company to yeah. was to get Colgate Palmolive globally into the hmm. business. It was just helped us so much. Uh, but when Ashutosh got uh, moved to Kedar, I remember him telling me that, "Hey, I'm moving now, and this is so much. I'm just so excited about this, and just the reputation you guys have." Ashutosh is, of course, a close friend and that, that story holds, but the reputation your firm has amongst founders, amongst the community, is just absolutely stellar. But it brings me to another point, right? You're right, actions do speak louder than words and middle-class India has been coached in being humble. Mm. Feet on the ground, yeah. you know, like, don't, don't. But I do believe that there is power to telling these stories because it influences Possibly the next absolute mm. 50 people who are setting up their own funds yeah. to think, okay, this is how carry should be mm. distributed. And that's the huge long-term benefit of keeping the best people close mm. rather than kind of concentrating wealth in just the GP or just the top field. Uh, so you guys should talk about it a lot more. I'm so glad that you're here doing it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's genuinely important. Right? Yeah. Private equities, I think mm -hmm. we'll be, like China, we'll see a lot more homegrown fund over the next. 15, 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. And if they are able to kind of take off from where, where, where you know, saw the learning that you have on what made you successful, then it, it does well for everyone. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. What are some of the, um, uh, you made nine investments in the first fund, right? And and, and, and how, what's it been like after that? How many, what's the lifetime number of deals that you guys have done total? 25. 25. If I were to ask you, what, what is the commonality between um, good founders that you back or good promoters that you back what is, because I used to think that there's a lot common mm. I was just realized that 
success has many shapes and forms. Mm-hmm. Right? People are really different. Correct. Like really, really different. Like I would never like for example, I'm like Mr. Sanjeev Joneja. Mm. He is the founder of this company called Case King. Mm-hmm. Of course, these are episode a few weeks back with him. Mm-hmm. Done so well, right? So he sold Case King to Imami. Yeah. For a sixteen fifty crore kind of a thing, and then. Um, started his own set of brands again, reinvested, called mm-hmm. Regisa Laboratories. Mm-hmm. I think he runs Pets of Art, which is like almost 50 crore packed mm-hmm. business per year. And he runs Dr. Ortho, which is like I think a 70 crore packed business per year. So very nice, very cool insights and that kind of guy. But they're like, I don't see my phone before 4 p.m. every day. And I'm like, is this a function of success? Like, clearly I'm doing it. I mean, it's like a couple of people who value it and this guy kind of look at his phone and run. He doesn't believe in distribution. Uh, like, oh, I only believe in wholesaler relationships uh, and marketing. Distribution, they will manage. And that's so different from, for example, a Colgate or what kind of pretty right. genuinely involved flash distribution. Correct. Uh, and Akash and his father, Mr. Charles, the Akash Institute founded like again, very different approach yeah. to education. Is it student first? Yeah. While education today has taken an educator first, like a mm-hmm. teacher first, like teachers yeah. are in the center of gravity over the yeah. education levels. They're like still in the center of gravity. We take feedback and you make we commoditize teaching, which very few people will actually talk about that way. Right? Mm. So, you know, teachers are commodities, students are gods. Mm. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. So for you guys, of the 25, talk about some of the most interesting, maybe counterintuitive uh, founder strategies or things that surprised you about people. But what kind of what what was the commonality, if, if if any, amongst people who did well as founders? Commonality, I think, is if you really look at it, it's typically being people who have very strong beliefs in their own businesses. Where they, I wouldn't say, eat, drink, sleep their business, but basically have a very focused approach around their business. And have figured out how to be a market leader in some segment. It doesn't have to be a market leader in India. It doesn't have to be a market leader in every category. But like, if you take the example of Ravi Modi, he's a market leader, he's a Manevar founder, yeah. market leader in ethnic wear, right? He said men's ethnic wear, I'll own it. I'll own it. And he's literally owned it, right? Yeah. And the rest of the history, what market gap that company had. Or if you look at, for example, what we've done with GK in Vishal Megamart, he basically said that, look, India, the real growth is coming at price points which are very different which are the 99 to 999 price points. That market is infinite. I want to make sure I'm catering to that and giving them a very good product and a very good product which is as fashionable, as trendy. They can, they were watching the same videos. They know what trends are being followed. Let's be prepared for it. Let's be ready for it. Or if you look at Piyush as an example, at Lenskart, saying that, look, I have to give a good product and people will, it'll become a fashion. It'll no longer remain, not just the need, it'll become a fashion as well. And people want to change it. People want to have different glasses. My father having the same glasses for 10 years. No, no, that is not there. Including we change glasses. And you give it an affordability price point where people will want to change. Of course, the product has to be sturdy. Product has to be sound. It has to serve the purpose. But that's stable stakes today. So I think a lot of the basics today, people, strong entrepreneurs understand their table stakes. Then they say, look, we'll take a niche and we'll own the niche. And I think if they can own the niche and have a focus around it, Magic happens. Now you have a sample set of 25, which is yeah. statistically significant now, right? Can what it. differentiates great promoters? What do you think is common? Plus 8, 9 from GA days also. So over yeah. 30 now. Yeah. And do you have to angel investing also? Yes. A little bit. A little bit. Now that then. Yeah. Gamma yeah. to collect. Yeah. Maybe 
plus quite a few data points. I think, I mean, you know, given the McKinsey training, you can't uh, help but come up with a framework. Uh, so, I mean, what Sanish explained, I'll try and put it in a framework at least that helps me understand it better. Um, I think in, in at least in in the way I look at it, there are three elements, right? There is what I call as the drive quotient, which is the hunger and sort of just the the jasba and junoon as it's called, right? Which I think in all our successful founders, they're the most over-indexed on, right? That is the most important thing in a founder which runs across each and every founder. Then it's the emotional quotient, which has a bunch of things around how do you lead, how to communicate, listen, talk, who to, you know, really, how do you share success? How do you uh, be truly, you know, like a leader, right? Um, that's probably the second most important uh, factor that we try and assess for and that runs across all the successful founders. The third is intellectual quotient, which is, you know, at least in our experience, and I'll, you know, I'll speak for myself, important, but not necessarily, you don't need to be a rocket scientist, right? So, I mean, conventionally thinking maybe the other way around, that IQ is probably most important, that's how you ace exams and so on and so forth, but IQ is frankly less relevant in the exam of real life, Yeah, right? There, the drive, the hunger, the persistence, and the emotional quotient really is far, far more important. I mean, most people we have backed have been smart, obviously, but none of them have been in many ways, you know, off the charts, you know, NASA variety. Right or rocket scientists, but they've been definitely over-indexed on these two aspects. Whether it's Piyush at Lenskart, whether it's Ravi at Manyavar, you know, um, Sachinder at Avas, uh, you know, Manish at Purple, um, you know, uh, Dr. Prashant at Oliva, Dr. Arun at ASG. There's many, many, many different, you know, uh, entrepreneurs. But clearly, the drive quotient, the DQ, greater than EQ, greater than IQ. I mean, that's the uh, framework that I want to do. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree with you. In fact, uh, and that initial part of our conversation where we kind of index on IQ so much and then over a period of time we realize that leadership is actually a lot more about just being a leader of people. Correct. You need uh, followership. Otherwise, there's no other way. You can't be a great leader. I com- do, do you guys, how do you guys, how, so I want to come to this, like when you're evaluating founders to invest in mm. and of course you do ref checks and due diligence and all that, um, how do you evaluate for these three things outside of just the conversation and track record? Do you have a kind of, how do you put your finger on the pulse of that? I think we try and build a picture, right? One is, as you said, through the conversation and these are multiple conversations, but it's in the courtship period. So to that extent, everyone's on their best behavior. Correct. So you try and at least, you know, talk to partners, whether it's a supplier, whether it's a customer, whether it's a board member, whether it's an investor, former, uh, who've had interactions with the team or the CEO or the founder at different points in time. So you try and create longitudinal data points, you know, of how things have played out and you try and do it across a larger set. And it's, you know, not just us doing it, the entire team, you know, programmatically does that. So we try and create a picture of, you know, who is the person that we're backing with. In fact, in our business, we keep saying, who is more, more important than what on the margin, right? Uh, you could be running an airline business, but still make an indigo, 
yeah. right? Versus running sort of Oracle and still perhaps yeah. not do as good a job, right? Yeah. So to that extent, who is a very, very important part of of what we what we do? I think this helps us at least get a sense on these three dimensions, right? And there are times when the tribe quotient is off the charts, so much so that, you know, uh, and IQ is also very, very high, but EQ sometimes is, you know, different, right? I mean, you, you, you push people, whereas George Bernard Shaw says, like, all progress depends on the unreasonable man, right, to some extent. <laughs> so just, but that's fine, right? That's who that individual is, who he or she is, yeah. and they're just passion kind of makes them shine through. So sometimes it's, you know, recognizing it's a package deal. We're all packages, some over-index, some, you know, in line. But does that package work for us? And does it work for that context, right? In a business like Lenskart, where Piyush is sort of driving the business, you know, it's his package that's really done wonders. And in a business, you know, which is different, like ASG as an example, it's Dr. Arun's package of very high EQ and, you know, massive drive that works there, right? So yeah. that context, the package in each context is very important. Sometimes people confuse passion for working hard. Yeah. It's not the same. Actually, I personally respect people more who work smarter. Like you were talking about an example where the gentleman doesn't see his phone till four. Yeah. We have a similar example. If you look at Ravi Modi or if you have a chat with him and you sit with him, he barely looks at his phone. There's no paper on his desk. But he's super sharp. He takes care of people. He knows what it takes to succeed in the business. Simple metrics that he keeps improving on. Like one of the things he figured out very early in life was whatever was succeeding, because there's a lot of embroidery involved, it basically takes two months to get it back into the stores. So how do you reduce that to seven days? How do you figure out what's selling early? So I think there's a simple thing that if you eat, breathe and sleep that business, it comes as a second nature to you. And I think that's where you will find a lot of successes come. Where people inherently understand what it takes to succeed. Of course, bumps will come along the way. Some you'll anticipate, some you'll not anticipate. But I think people who can think smartly around that specific business, usually you'll find will do well. The other thing you'll find is people who are more focused than more broader, usually end up doing better. Like rather than running five businesses is very difficult. Building one business itself is a challenge. So you focus on one business, build it out, rather than trying to have multiple businesses going yeah. at the same time. I think sometimes people make the mistake that they have two, three, four businesses running at the same time. Focus on one business. If you can compound the business, the amount of value you will create for yourself, your family, your shareholders, and your stakeholders is going to be disproportionate to having four Mediocre business versus one successful business. And I always tell all our entrepreneurs and all our things, it's the power of compounding. Don't underestimate it. Yeah. It's the simple clocking every year, 20, 25% return. The company in 25 years is very, very different. Like what your father was part of a team that was there when TCS went through his primitive years, right? And you see where the business is today. It's just the power of compounding or HDFC bank, the power of compounding. I mean, you just keep clocking the returns again and again and again. And what you have in 20, 25 years in your lifetime, not even for your kids, in your lifetime is something which is phenomenal. So I think that's what we focus on now. Of course, if you are a good leader and you have followership, it makes it much easier. And one basic simple thing that you can check is what's the attrition level that's in your level. That gives you a very good indication of followership. 
Now, every company has attrition, so you can't say that there should be zero attrition. But if the people keep changing again and again and again, then I think that's a challenge. Or, for example, you are very clear that, look, there are some gaps this entrepreneur has, but he has so much clarity on some of the other stuff. And frankly, you have to work with those gaps and you have to find a different set of people that might work. Like one of the mistakes a lot of people make is you should only get very experienced people to work with entrepreneurs. Some people just work better with younger people. So you just identify it, focus on it. Yeah. That's the set for him or her, right? And you just work to adapt and you find your own things that keep you going. Or some people work beautifully with older people who they really respect, value, take advice from. So I think that is the other nuance that I feel sometimes is missed. Everybody believes that you have to get the similar set of people to work alongside. It does not work. That's why to your starting point, entrepreneurs are very different. All of them are very unique. That's what makes them special. And it takes a lot of guts to be an entrepreneur. Because you are putting a lot of risk. And once you start down the journey, you have to commit at least five, six years. right? Before you even know whether you're on a path where there'll be some light at the end of the tunnel or you have to change your paths altogether. I think one other area which I want to just, one of the things which has really, again, been a common factor is most founders who've really done an exceptional job have been also very focused on talent and people themselves. Right? And that's something, whether it's Anujet Care in our situation or Arul at Beritas, you know, Dr. Arun DSG, Ravi, in the, just the focus around making sure that, you know, this is, really about building a great team of leaders and helping them succeed. I think that's also a very important aspect of successful founders. Yeah. For example, Himan Jalan and quite quite contrary, mm. right? Because he's the kind of person who works very well with younger people. Mm. Right? Right. So his son Parag, also a McKinsey alum, mm. uh, one described it beautifully to me. I think this 2015, 2016, long back when I was just starting my ah. company, about to leave the firm. Ah. We had just joined the firm in New York. And I only, company's doing so well. I think that by that time, I think they were hitting 600 crores top line or 500 crores, all of that, right? Couple of rounds of funding, acquisition, this time, the other. So I was like, uh, how's, how's this leadership style? You know, is uh, can he be a firm client and so on? Uh, at some point, it'll be good to like serve him and so on. So, but I was like, no, yeah. After that, the 300 employees, and now they're like, they like, it's like one DCS and 300 MCKs. <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, there are no years. Uh, like, there are 300 people who just all, all sales posts, all yeah. like, uh, like, like, they don't roll up to him, uh, they report into him. <laughs> 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 I was like, I'm hoping that it's you. I don't know, you can quite do that now. Now, that's bad. I'm going to grow. That's a good idea. So, for, I can imagine that being this tremendous uh, um, ability to kind of work smart and be so involved in the business. But that's why I think we also come across this, uh, Shand. What happens is there are certain styles which work from point A to point B, point B to point C, but they don't work from point C to point D. So it's about, I guess, the horizon, right? And I mean, even if you look at global companies these days and you look at sort of the typical cycle Uh of longevity, I mean, it's come down from 40, 50 years back in the day to now 20, 22 years where, you know, a truly a corporation can continue to be a top quartile performer consistently. Correct. It's shrinking Correct. because of this reason. Yeah, someone put, the, the framework someone put on the show was pioneer scalar factory owner. Mm-hmm. 
So zero to one journeys are pioneer journeys, are creative, lot of experimentation. Uh, you know, and you kind of reward yourself on breaking the rule. Mm. Scalar is when you found, you have found EMF in a way and kind of go at it like in, in you know hundred percent growth every year. Mm. And then factory owner is then it becomes utility. It's, it's, it's efficiency. Mm. That's when you're like, okay, now efficiency will drive will drive value creation. It's not going to be everything else. So then yeah. it's a good way of good way of describing yeah, it. Very interesting because. I see that happen with us also now, right? Yeah. So now, at from zero to two fifty crores, I think mm-hmm. is a is a journey of discovery and so on. I think two fifty thousand crores will be one of you know kind of just focusing on what I call boring tasks. Shaving foam bechna is in the larger scheme of things is not the most exciting thing in the world. Mm-hmm. You have to make it exciting. Yeah. I will do things like barber shop and like fifty other things, but really kind of make mm-hmm. sure that you yeah. differentiate yourself from your competition. And thousand onward, I think we'll have to become a different company again. Where at that point, I'm hoping that you know investment investors like Racket and Colgate mm. operate on mm. negative working capital, and our Racket mm. is just one of the more. They're they're, all, they're also like uh, their clients of ours. Mm. We run direct for them. I can see the way they negotiate, how they manage cash. Every small line item is kind of you know mm. I, itemized and clearly negotiated in the discussion. So I told my team that this is a very cool learning experience for us because. This how we should be negotiating with our supplier and our manufacturer and our vendors and everyone who we work with. This is well, that gives you the buffer. If you have that, then you have a lot of buffer to innovate. You have a lot of buffer to spend. You have a lot of buffer to take chances, which you can't exactly. Yeah, it's almost trade-offs yeah. also, right? I mean, like that innovation is an example. The kind of innovation you guys are doing sometimes is not possible in larger exactly. companies. Right? So it's always about a trade-off. There are no free lunches anywhere. Okay. Right? When you are trying to, you know, at that stage, this is important. And you have to trade off something else for it, right? Yeah. Because making it this very cookie cutter assembly line processized business will then take away a lot of the creative, you know, aspect. It, it, I mean, we always keep thinking about this, right? Everything is with a trade off, no free lunches anyway. Well, absolutely. For example, a lot of the large auto companies today want to get, like, have built out electric vehicle mm-hmm. technology and want to kind of, and it's changing every every month almost. And I, I, I meet some of these promoters or I meet some of them socially, even mm-hmm. formally. Through McKinsey or whatever, and they have a classic, you know, think here. हमारा ये core business है. इसको हम हाथ नहीं लगा सकते. अब ये अलग innovation करना ना. इसके लिए let's recruit separately and put them in WeWork. That's not going to work. Putting a team in WeWork is not the way to build out innovation. But they're right. Like for those companies to innovate, which is why companies who like who are super innovative even at scale, correct, are companies which are very but rare. And... But I think a lot of people also don't recognize. That how the market changes, how consolidation happens. There's the same EV two wheelers. There were 2,500 companies in China in 2010. There were 250 in 2015, and today five control close to 70% of the market. That level of concentration comes in very very rapidly, and M&A will happen. Somebody will succeed. Somebody will fail. Because at the end of the day, in this, you will need scheme, right? Yeah, that's the only way. You're going to be a market leader. That was COVID was not great. I can't happen. Also, you there's a lot of charging infrastructure. There's a lot of support that you need to build in, and I think that will only come with scale. That's why I think as you think about an idea, people should always step back and say, "Look, is this a scalable idea? It may not be a scalable idea for the country. It may be a scalable idea for one geography or one segment, etc. That's good enough, because given the size and scale of our country today, you can build a large business just on that. But it should be a scalable idea." Niche is very interesting. Then you say I'm building this to be acquired because they can't do the innovation themselves. 
I'm the innovation factory. I will do the innovation. Somebody will acquire it. I'll make a lot of money. Then I'll do the next innovation. Then I'll do this. And some people are very good at it. They are just serial entrepreneurs where they figure out this is one niche. They build the business because they know somebody is going to buy it. Sell the business to somebody. Then go to the next idea. Especially in software. Like mm-hmm. it will, uh, like I know a founder, Rohit Toshti Wala, on his third gig now. He was at VMware, left, started a company, sold it to VMware, joined back, again with them, with them, <laughs> Left, started a company, again sold it to VM. <laughs> this looks like a pretty cool gig, man. I mean, it's like knowing your circle of competence a little bit, right? Yeah. Sometimes we are unaware of what this true circle of competence is individually yeah. in some ways. And, you know, therefore, it's important to, to, to the framework you were earlier using. There are very few people who can be pioneer, scaler, and factory owner at the same time. Maybe yeah. Bezos, maybe an Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, maybe. maybe Zuckerberg. But very few, right? Yeah. And some of these people who are doing this maybe are saying, I'm a pioneer. Let me monetize when I'm a pioneer. I'm a pioneer plus a scaler, but not a factory. So some of this is about just figuring yourself out to some extent. Yeah. And very few of them go cross industry. Yeah. You see, they're very good at one and they know it and they continuously do it. Correct. And understanding what your business is itself is a big thing, right? The shoes. Like if you look at Amazon, he says it very clear. I'm a logistics company at the end of the day, right? That's what I'm building. If that does not work, nothing else matters. And I think that where I feel the clarity of thought and the clarity of thinking that's all these entrepreneurs have is just phenomenal. Yeah. The other thing that at least we were taught very well in GA by the guy who started GA, Steve Dunning, was always recruit people who are smarter than you. Yeah. Never shy away from that. Always recruit people who are smarter than you. Because what will happen is they will provide you the leverage and they will let you bring stuff and bring capabilities to the organization which will help you grow faster and faster and faster. And sometimes entrepreneurs struggle with that. I feel that be comfortable in your own skin yeah. and go ahead and recruit people who are very, very smart. They'll help you. But of course, culture has to be the underpinning. Yeah. That dude has to be the under. Don't compromise on that. Just don't compromise. It's not worth it. Culture is such a... I completely agree. I, you know, I have... Because we sell Bombay Sharing Company institutionally as well, right? We sell it in pharma companies. We sell it in hotels. We sell it in a lot. So I end up going to a lot of companies mm. to sell. Mm. And... We can be clients for a different breed. And I wasn't then long enough to really recognize it. But now over the last six, seven years, I've recognized that just a two-minute walk through in a, in a gives you a certain office gives you a very, very clear sense of the vibe of the years. You can get a sense of the politics. You can get a sense of whether people are happy. You can, at least now I've become a lot more sensitive to just facial feedback. Yeah. I can see from the faces of people, are they okay or are they not okay? It's damn hard to get it right mm. across this, you know, zero to one, one to ten. It's always, to be honest, even after all this experience, it's hard. You still make mistakes. The question is, you have to try and keep reducing the number of mistakes. That's all. You will still make mistakes. I am saying that's a given. You will make mistakes. And then you keep figuring out what is the kind of risk you don't want to underwrite. Yeah. Like one of the things we always say, any kind of concentration, we don't want to underwrite. What can hit you? Anything. Product concentration. Concentration of client concentration of uh, like mud market etc you have to be very very sensitive so plan B become very difficult yeah because then it hits you very very hard concentration of risk basically yeah. right risk could be in product could be in customer could be in geography could be even in the key person for that matter right so it depends on sort of is that is that a, is that a, is, is, is concentration of risk in key person a thing like do you think that people are as indispensable as I mean it's made out I think it's a context specific situation I think we we've obviously done several situations where we have backed sort of someone who is clearly the key person 
right, in a particular business. And we've been comfortable with that, right, because just of the nature of the person, the impact, the institution. But then obviously, together, you try and see how you de-risk that piece a little bit, you know, through things like enhancing the team, you know, conversations around succession and so on and so forth, right? So it's not a a hundred percent sort of foolproof uh, type of situation, but I think it's something which we feel, you know, is definitely uh, workable. And it happens, right? If you look at it, part of the concentration also comes from what is the rest of the organization capabilities, right? Yeah. So if you have a very strong organization, then we all overestimate what our value to the organization completely. But if the organization is a little bit weak, then yes, the concentration is real. So I think contextual is very, very important. That's what I, I strongly believe. Well, I think that, oh, sorry. No, 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 you, no, I was going to say, and what happens is a lot of times when people realize and they are smart, then they will try and correct their concentration. Because it helps them more than it helps anybody else. Yeah. The truth is because a lot of times the entrepreneur's value at risk in that business and for his family is very, very high. Yeah. So I think as people understand it, we are, find, we are finding increasingly that people have become more conscious of it. Maybe it's a COVID impact or maybe it's people are just more conscious or you see more of those people as you grow older also yourself. But you find that that has become a much more real topic today than probably what it was even five years back. I, the more I think about it, the more I agree. I think it's yeah. it's a, it's so difficult. Like I said, I I always find the investor's job so hard. Like it's just so difficult mm-hmm. because you have it's 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 very blind for a long time, and then people I don't think people recognize how much pressure I I have begun to appreciate this a lot more more recently, as opposed to earlier. I always used to think it was a um. Uh, it was an easier job than it actually is because just the information asymmetry is so high. It brings me to my next question actually, which is you've spoken about the good stuff with founders. Um, but, and especially in growth stage private equity where sometimes red flags are, you know, kind of hidden. You don't see them. Large businesses especially, there is uh, mis- misrepresentation. There are compliance issues, which is why for... India promoter-driven companies in India at scale uh, is a tricky market to kind of yeah. blur capital, right? Uh, and we'll, we'll blur out some of this stuff. But for example, we're looking at Supermax, uh, where Actis is just kind of just struggling out land business because the promoter is just bad form across the board, right? True. Um, for you guys, like, one... Have you, has has that happened for you where an investment uh, where the thesis was X but went completely off because uh, because with things did not play out from a person standpoint or from a promoter standpoint or from a team standpoint and how do you deal with that like what what happens in that case how how hard was it for you individually and as a firm the truth is always hard we've seen it it's not that we haven't seen it seen in our past lives at GI, we've seen it there, etc. It's always hard. Um, but I think what you have to be very careful on is one, it you can't let it start affecting you. And when it's happening, it does affect you. It's hard, it's tougher. Second thing is, I think the best solution 
in a lot of these situations, you sit on the table and try and find a solution together. Um, sometimes the solution may be more visible, sometimes the solution may be less visible. And if you can't find a solution, then you just step back. I think beyond a point, at least our view of fighting does not help. And we are not, we don't want to fight with anybody. We don't want to have that situation. So try and sit on the table, try and find a solution. Uh, life is too short. And if you can't find a solution, then you have to move on. And you have to realize some, by and large, you'll do a good job, one off here and there, could happen. And it could be for any reason. Maybe not because the founder was a bad founder also. It could be just the situation became tougher, market became tougher. Um, it could be there was some misunderstanding. It could be the view that they had was very different. And you have to respect it at the end of the day. And you have to let them drive it. So I think it's a combination of all of that, but it's it's tough. It's not easy to go through it. Even after 20 years of investing, I would still say it's tough. Yeah, so because you think about it, right? Yeah. You guys have bad news first. So in your mind, it'll be, okay, we have X number of people to answer to. Mm. There is a certain sense of personal nah. failure, which purely A-type people such as yourselves take much harder than, of course, the average person. Then there is... Um, it I feel that it leads to a lot of domino effects in terms of that one data point starts affecting judgment on everything else. You start looking at everything with a uh, your investors. One of the biggest skills is to have rose-tinted glasses because that helps you push companies to achieve things that even the company may not think is possible. Mm-hmm. Even as founders, mm-hmm. but it dents that rose tint also a lot because you start becoming pessimistic or you. So to get out of it will be really difficult. Right? Yeah, I think. I mean, look, this is an occupational reality, right, Chandana? So in what we do, we will have a lot of successes, but some challenging situations as well. But I think, thankfully, we've been, again, we're grateful that we probably have less than our fair share of what, you know, average would look like, thankfully. Um, But having said that, I think uh, in most cases, I mean, again, if I segmented in the context of a situation where you have the ability to change something. Right? There are times when you feel that maybe from point A to point B, you know, there was a certain skill set that was doing well, delivering the outcomes. But it's not going to be the same which will deliver the outcomes from point B to point C. And in that case, you have a dignified conversation, but, you know, you obviously change tracks, right? That's just, I mean, it's honorable to have that conversation, right? Because our obligation is to build lasting institutions. It's not to be holden to any one individual, yeah. right? like that would say, It's a to sort of means to an end, not necessarily the end in the yeah. right? So to that extent, I think it's important to have some tough conversations. But to what Sunny said earlier, if you're doing it in the best interest of the firm or the company in question, then those tough conversations need to be had. But you know, uh, they are in the, in the long-term interests of the business. And that's what we've done uh, every single time, right? If you look at sort of, uh, let's say, another market, like a North American market, which is obviously only a buyout market, there most of these folks, uh, so Blackstone or some of the other people, they would probably have a fair bit of changeover from the CEO that they started it versus the CEO that eventually... Uh, grow the ship. That's just part and parcel of what you're doing. But I think 
because we are human and not superhuman, we recognize that we can't know it all, right? So the fact that the two of us trust each other, but we're different. My blind spots are covered by Sunish well and vice versa. And when we expand that to include, you know, six, seven, eight, 10, 20, 30 people, then as a team, we are able to really push ourselves on each other's blind spots and ask some uncomfortable questions, tough questions, and take those tough calls sooner rather than later. Because, you know, we're not in the business of holding on to uh, an asset for perpetuity, right? Yeah. We have to sort of make sure that we take decisions, even if it ends up being sometimes not necessarily the right call, at least the fact that you've taken a decision is important rather than not, rather than letting things linger. But sometimes time is a big healer, you know. But people underestimate the value of time. Sometimes time passing creates a lot of solutions for itself. Yeah. And that you work on it. I think that the other thing we are a little bit lucky, I would say, is because we don't do early stage investing. So we see probably a lesser share than probably what the early stage people go through. And they have to take a call on the entrepreneur in the market at a very, very young stage of a company. We only come in when the business model is proven, when we are confident that there's less risk on the business model. So I think our life is a little bit easier. Of course, our life is a little bit harder because your competitive pool is a bigger competitive pool at that point of time in terms of companies that are competing, etc. But I think uh, as long as you keep the philosophy that let's do what is right for the company, by and large, you'll be fine, by and large. There'll always be aberration, there'll always be challenges, etc. But by and large, you'll be fine. And then when you, if you have a challenge situation, you have to realize fight does not lead anywhere. It does hurt, right? I, I, we are seeing a lot of this happen over the last two years. A lot of unraveling of, in your right, a lot of, a lot of it is in early stage businesses or businesses that are young but hyper scale. Just two years old, about billion dollars. Correct. You know, like, correct. I think it's just, it's, it's like pushing steroids down a baby's throat. That's right. point, how much can a baby take, right? Correct. Um, correct. And then just natural scale of growth. It's very different for different people, but expecting a, six-year-old to, you know, deadlift 150 kg is not possible, right? So, but we see that happen. So, that I, I I can, in my mind, that, that situation plays out so clearly in my mind that so valuation raised because promise was promised. And founder wanted to raise the most amount of money because there were three, four people coming up with the same idea. And then aggressive investors came on board. And then the investors pushed every month. And I now know what that cycle looks like. Yeah, of course. This quarter make it now, this quarter make it now, numbers get now. And then at some at some point, Breaks. someone makes a judgment call that is, that does not want to show the bad news first. Yeah. And then you just cross the line and then and then it's just downhill down down from there. Breaks so poorly, reputationally also, yeah. financially also. Success in the business also. You know, there's one thing that I think everybody needs to imbibe, learn and remember. That it takes a long period to build a successful company. There are very few companies globally that have been built at very short periods of time. It takes long. It is built brick by brick. You can't create a house in, in one night and expect that the house will be stable, right? And I think that's where... If you shift your focus from saying, what is my value today to what is the long lasting value I'm building? I think you will be fine. Yeah. 
there'll be some great companies that will come out of india that's why i feel that this stress that has come in the consumer internet space or saas space today will help some of the companies that lost out lost this will come out very strong because the trend is behind them there is no question digitization is happening indian consumer is going on the net indian consumer is buying etc so if you build a business which is a strong business you will be fine at the end of the day and look at every stakeholder and focus on how do you create value for every stakeholder correct think about your customer what value are you creating for your customer think about your employees what value are you creating for the employees think about the investors what value are you creating and of course you as an entrepreneur will definitely benefit if those three are benefiting so at some level you're not misaligned you are actually aligned yes and i think as you keep that philosophy that's why every time we give the same example look at hdfc bank look at pcs look at any company look at manever look at whatever you want because vishal is built brick by brick you cannot you try and grow too fast it doesn't work frankly it doesn't work if you grow 60% zero 60% zero yeah it's very dangerous Correct. much rather grow 25 25 25 whatever 25 26 27 25 24 right. another thing and you keep building it you will build a fabulous business just an just an amazing business like prashant was referring to care right care health insurance anush built that business for very trying times right the parent was going through a tough time he built that business you see the value of the business today i mean it's a large scale second biggest stand alone stand alone health insurance business sound foundation very strong claim the ratios that's why he's getting the value he's getting so i think you build it and you'll sustain it we are completely don't miss the element of sustainability of value there is no use being a unicorn if you can only remain for a year yeah it's better to become a unicorn 2 years later and then you remain for the rest of your life another thing no like when when you know i completely agree with you and that having experience of bombay shaving company we are not a unicorn we're not even close to it right but uh for us i think we measure ourselves on consumer love market share in relevant shelves um repeat rates uh reviews and kind of uh, uh, uh nps scores of the products and we realize that the market is large and we will always have adjacencies to play in so every time i talk to investors i i love talking to investors because you you can very quietly at the back of your mind you can start kind of figuring out whether your business fits what like for example you guys spoke about uh risk concentration of risk and i'm thinking while while you were talking i was thinking the word concentration of risk is there and how of you will really give me a, like yeah, keep yeah. in involved in my yeah. mentally for the next 3 4 days and probably need to okay which i should be park and gauri and somebody like yeah. you know do we have a concentration of risk on our nature yeah. uh, which we probably might from a channel standpoint yeah. but um and that's why i love these conversations see to get it this way uh, our country is going 6 7% right there is 6 or 8 it's a very attractive growth okay. So this is real growth, right? If you add inflation, you're growing double digits already. Correct. And if you have a repeat customer base, let's say of seventy percent or eighty percent to you to your business, right? Plus you have inflation. Plus new people are getting added into the consumer class. Correct. Add a little bit of distribution, you can get very good growth. Correct. But why will they come by if the product is good and you're serving a need? Correct. Wo miss nii hona chahiye. Wo I feel jab people miss kar dete na, then I think is where a lot of the challenges come. If that you can focus on, say, ki. I'll build a great product for a price point. See, at the end of the day, you have to our big market is where lower middle class and middle class. Okay. You have to have that target segment and go after that target segment. Okay. Build that product and continuously deliver good value. 
So I think that form that you have left for us to see that going to be very interesting. I was just thinking about it. I have been on some time. Can we go for conclusion? So I think that's that's where I feel that वो करते रहो. वही भगवान जी की saying है ना कर्म कर फल की इच्छा मत कर. हाँ. वो अगर philosophy रखोगे ना आप फल अपने आप आएगा. बहुत opportunity है इंडिया में फल लाने की बहुत. We are just see the size and scale this country is going to grow to. Hello, I think the people had said this about India shining into round four. It didn't really play itself out mm. as much as one might have thought. Then the real like the when you guys tried Kedar, I think that was the second wave and the flip cards and make my trip and some of those consumer businesses. I think at that time was was Zoho and I had also kind of found a sphere. And then there was this whole twenty fifteen twenty sixteen set of companies and now there is. Just to, like I think founders today, it scares me honestly to see how ambitious and yeah, you know, it's truly come a phase. Like when we used to talk to, just talk about when we graduated from whichever college we graduated from. I think entrepreneurship was not necessarily the first port of call, or yeah. a lot of people saying, "Look, I will start my own company." But now you look at the IITs, you know, other universities. People are very comfortable taking that risk of jumping straight into entrepreneurship, right? I mean, and also got on social status. Yeah. It's a cool thing. It's a cool yeah, thing. Exactly. So the risk appetite in general is increased, you know, which is I think a very very good sign. Yeah. And when you blend that risk appetite with the right capital flows and the right kind of capital, then it can create magic. I think. And to your point, hopefully, and you know, keeping fingers crossed that the next decade, you know, truly all these different things combine together to. Realize the full potential of India, and because there's clearly everyone believes in the potential, yeah. right? Um, but sometimes everything has to sort of come oh, together. Yeah. And Rahul said this beautifully. The father founder of Tribo, he said, the golden period of our country is going to coincide with the most productive period of our professional lives, mm-hmm. and that is just very lucky. Such a lucky, incredible mm-hmm. privilege, um, and we should just kind of milk it. Maximally for like escape velocity. See the other benefit a lot of companies have today as startups is that they're also seeing disruption of traditional channels which are unprecedented. Right? Digital today, digital first is a reality, right? Correct. You can build a business which is digital first. You can build a business where distribution is outsourced, right? You can take on the large guys. Otherwise, how could you take on a, a Gillette, right? Okay. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. They the company in the US. Who were before Gillette struggled to take on Gillette, right? Okay. And Gillette got created, but today you can and build. You built a phenomenally large business, right? Based on that, so I think that's the opportunity that you can use a lot of channels which were not available earlier. And therefore, if you focus on all the stakeholders carefully, and build a very strong value proposition, businesses will happen. And businesses will get. I mean, take the Manewar example, right? It has a simple thing. A lot of people don't realize the price points that sell there. The cheapest Sherwani you can get is in that store, and we coined a beautiful term for him, which was democratizing aristocracy. One of our operating partners came up with it, which is you want to feel it's your wedding, right? You want to feel special, yeah. But affordability is as important because then only the market grows, right? It took us so long, Sonish, to understand this that democratizing aristocracy is a beautiful way to put it. Someone had told us this. It's also an investor discussion. Hmm. Which didn't actually go through. Okay. okay, but it was a great discussion. But that that point stuck with me. Huh. And he said that very few companies are able to marry 
value and aspiration. And they always assume it's a choice. They always assume that if you're going to be value first, you're not going to be aspiration. And if you're going to be aspiration, you'll have to compromise on, 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 on giving value to the consumers. Very few companies are able to marry value and aspiration. If you can do that, that's incredible. Where consumers buy a product, feel that we have premium, hai, they can sustain. Hai. And that's, that is just... And to one of our businesses, you know, which is Vishal, which is that obviously a hypermarket focused on the value segment. Their tagline and what the mission, the purpose they stand for is making aspirations affordable. Right? So right from a 99 rupee polo t-shirt, right? which is catering to the low-income, lower-middle-income segment, to your point. I mean, it's exactly that, right? You really focus on what is the need, form, function, price, and you build your assortment around that, right? And it's relevant for a retailer, it's relevant for a you know product business, it's relevant for a service business, but that's something which I think runs through a lot of you know yeah. company DNAs because it truly, to your point, helps... You know, in making sure you're creating, you know, a large opportunity. Right. I mean, it's a business which has sort of gone from 200 stores to now 600 stores, you know, a large business. Because, I mean, if someone who prefers a slim fit, you know, it doesn't matter what your income is, you still prefer it, right? It doesn't matter whether you can afford it or not, but you still want it. Because the access to a YouTube or Instagram is democratized everyone's Completely. aspirations right so you still want that i mean even the uniqlo down jacket right in vishal shells i mean people want it it's like sort of that's the aspiration for people so how do you get that aspiration fulfilled is, is something which is hit the chord yeah i was actually want to give you a uniqlo example only. Mm-hmm. Right? you think about it, that's exactly what it is right that's why the company has done so well yeah they give you very high quality and very affordable price points and you feel good wearing it Correct. So I think that's the thing that a lot of people miss in my view. That they have to understand the end audience. And what you're what you're looking at, like one of the discussions we were having on your shaving product. Yeah. Your product is for India. Your product is not for the US. Correct. In India, people shave very differently. Correct. At the end of the day, you're still cutting the hair, but correct. But the way so, you're doing it is very differently. Took us so long, Sunish, to realize this yeah. that Indian in, so Indian skin is black hair broadly, mm. one brown skin. Okay, for men and women both. Mm. Hair removal is very different for from for us compared to let's say the US mm. or the Western world where it is either blonde hair on Caucasian skin mm. or black hair on black skin. Mm. In both cases, contrast effect is minimal. In our case, contrast effect is higher. Huge. Also, if you look at the subcontinent, you have highest amount of hair density per square area. Uh, in upper square uh, inch in let's say the Middle East but most of their skin is covered because of the heat mm. right? so they don't need to do a lot of hair removal mm. plus because of the religion there's a oh, bloated yes. culture mm. you move towards east India the first non uh, bearded country okay where there is a high amount where, where we marry high you know high temperatures so you need to remove hair otherwise it becomes uncomfortable black hair on brown skin at the same time uh, if you go towards east mm. from India, hair density becomes much lower. Again. Yeah, yeah. If you go towards Japan, like China, South East Asia and Japan, hair density again kind of falls Correct. So this is a very unique hair removal market mm. in India. And we have traditionally left it to services. Mm. We left it to barbers and waxing salons and stylists and so on. 
but the diy part of it is now becoming more and more important but at the same time the category is functional not beauty hmm. so how do you make the category fun the hence hmm. the 10 minutes of happiness part of our vision we give value give aspiration and at the end of the day pen just penetrate bathrooms in in a more meaningful way it's taken us so long to realize that we are doing something which is fairly unique uh but you know like now that we know we probably will kind of do it you know over just do more and more of the same and it was fine see a lot of successful businesses are also very repeat businesses the people forget that also but every time the interaction has to be as good or better than what happened last time when you open the can and you take out the foam you want it to come out thick correct you want it to stay properly you want to have a smooth shave in it so i think it's very very basic things that you have to deliver continuously every day can you place an order on amazon if it says two days please deliver it in one and a half days but not two and a half days yeah half days matter no but the expectation setting matters correct if you got to deliver in two and a half say three that's what they have beautifully done but it takes the stress out of the system right today you can see a black and yellow cab in mumbai but you've ordered an uber you're happy to wait for five minutes yeah for you know it's coming in five minutes you can track it you can see it and you're saying okay okay it's five minutes i can wait it's okay it's not the end of the world correct so that's where i feel that the businesses who understand the end customer and take anxiety out of it or stress out of it if people were worried that they shook your foam yeah and they sprayed it and whether it was liquid coming or foam coming out of you will see that they would be worried about the order when they know its consistency is there when they know over consistency amazon gets this consistency of experience is much more important than giving exceptional experience and not bad experience yeah, the 60060 anthem i just and it's just better to give like this consistency completely always always say so you were asking about entrepreneurs we like consistent entrepreneurs who understand this and what you promise see it doesn't matter you don't have to be best in every field what what you promise you deliver yeah 99% of the time nobody can deliver 100% of the time exceptions will happen i admit your mistakes if you see half the time it just takes one simple sorry right rather than arguing if you have made a mistake you say look i'm sorry yeah and that's all and it just it just finishes it it's all the case and end with an apology there's nothing left no it's so cool man consumer businesses some of the most interesting businesses also are very good at hammering the same point again and again till it resists code like if you look at what fog did right two massive giants and they just came out and said only one point they said you get more yeah it's not it's not a real spray you actually get the perfect one point kept hammering and kept hammering and kept hammering until people just said perfect spray dio hota hi hai and that's the new category where the big giants then launched similar products to try and take them on right but by the time the market was already much more had gone much ahead these guys had taken so much share what people forget is fog is actually a was a premium product Hmm. is a premium it is a premium product yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and it does not require all that you know all the dispensing and you know literally perfume and spray in water in a in a can in Correct. the form factor of a deodorant that's the brand and positioning right i mean we were having this conversation one of our colleagues ashwin was talking about it on a friday meeting which is our internal team day talking about two axes of innovation and distribution there yeah. and you know in different categories how do you put different people in the four quadrants of you know high innovation high distribution or great innovation great distribution and 
you know, how do they sort of map the journey? At some point, different people may have been in different quadrants, but eventually, obviously, you want to be on the best of distribution, the best of innovations. Yeah. Easier said than done. Correct. But, you know, that's sort of what characterizes great businesses, especially in consumer. Absolutely. Right? Because we're able to continue to innovate and, you know, use that to build the best distribution online, offline, you know, mindshare. Yeah, I think one of the things that we are doing with our razors, which is, and I hope it is, it is our fall moment mm. because we're launching a category. Mm. It's, this is going to be our fountainhead mm. category because it's not going to be, people don't realize that Gillette is actually a minority player in the sharing market. Mm. It's actually double-edged and services and all that, right? Mm. But it is the equity builder. Mm. You have a razor, then you have a CMR table. Mm. So we said, okay, fine. But what is it about Gillette that people don't like? It's a fantastic business and it's just a brilliant product and Honestly, mm. we can't do the investing and steel and all that Gillette can do. We can't. So we can't beat them on that. Mm. But I think everyone knows, especially Vector, Sensor XL, Mark III, Fusion and beyond, mm. these four five products with cartridges are expensive. Mm. Like I find a Master Fusion cartridge expensive. So I can imagine it for India being an expensive product. So our razors, all of them without exception, are going to come with a razor sharpener. Mm. It's basically a and I don't know whether you guys know this, but it's a it's strap of a synthetic material mm. attached to a, a surface. You can hang, hang it in your bathroom or keep it on on the on the sink. Mm. Take your razor and you kind of just rub against it two or three times, and the razor becomes like gets three or four more shaves in it. Wow. So, you are, so it's actually a very self-killing thing, and that's what we're going to talk about in the razor preneur uh, on the barber shop. Mm. Where we're going to tell people that we want you to tell your customers. Mm. Mm. To not buy our cartridges as for as long as they mm. can and save the world. Mm. Like, don't trash the world, reduce plastic, sharpen your razors every time. Mm. Don't buy our razor. Mm. But whatever you're using, at least sharpen that so that you can. And hopefully, that is our fall moment. Mm. That's the method that we want to keep hammering over and over. Yeah. We want multiple media to do it. But you're right, I think I mean, it may work, it may not work. I think this is. Well, I have the privilege of talking to you before yeah. it happens because, of course, if it bombs, then you will be like, let's think of it bombs, but it will be like, in top order. Well, that's what we don't do, right? We keep running different experiments, some work, some don't. That's the beauty of sort of being an entrepreneur. Actually, that's the only way it works. Taking yeah. a portion out in the market is wrong, you'll never know. That's because the same guy who launched Fog, launched Close, mm. the razor brand, and, uh, and it didn't work. Right? So there was something. There's one single use makeup, that didn't work. They they launched the single use makeup that didn't work. So I think it, a lot of times people forget that past is not necessarily a determinant of what the future is. You have to figure out what market what market needs, how they need it, etc. And then understand your target audience. I always say go from that and backwards. Correct. First understand both guys well. Why you're targeting the products? To why you're targeting? What are you doing? Which is what I, at least I found very fascinating. That's why it stuck with me. Your shape thing. Yeah, for an Indian market perspective, it's a it's a smart way to think about it. Oh, we're doing a lot of good. So I don't know whether you know this. Seventeen um, percent of Indian men have now started premature balding, and most men balding. And most men who go bald prefer to completely shave off their head and have some kind of facial hair because mm. you don't want like now halfway through kind of thing. There's no head shaver in the market. Wow, and there's a three to four times per week use case. Oh wow, yeah, because you don't want like three four days of growth and like that. Half moon coming. So, we're now going to go onto the streets uh. and ask people who are bald because we have a product that doesn't need water to shave your head. Mm. Just take it, 
do like turn on and there is a kind of a, um, applied on your head and you have two settings matte and gloss okay so <laughs> look at that uh, sign <laughs> like you want in real sign finish it like a billiards ball or you want like a kind of matte as a glow the matte finish and then just do it on the street mm-hmm. put it on youtube and it's amazing so we are really kind of getting into the use cases of shaving and kind of figuring out how to do it but you don't know man like oh this is the passion right i mean the way you describe it the way you thought <laughs> through it the journey the use case looking at different markets i mean it just bubbles through right yeah. this is what is the most inspiring part of being an entrepreneur and seeing that come through in you about you know bombay shaving company is quite fascinating we're battle hardened right it is not like we're in our first year or second year like seven years lot of things are we still at it we are going strong a lot of like it's very it's a very humbling experience to, to be around for this long it is but if you look at our investors like it is a 200 year old company colgate is a 230 year old company wow. colgate did not have toothpaste or did not have oral care for the first 70 years of their existence wow so if you look at it from that lens right yeah. you guys talk about institutions that outlast you yeah, yeah. and your businesses yeah. will be about outlasting us correct seven years nothing nothing yeah. there's no no we're not even not even absolutely But coming back to, to coming back to you, you guys made a very very positive, very optimistic reference to in the context of um, India yeah. for the next fifteen twenty years yeah. and the context of your your fund and the work that you guys do. Um, how do you see that shaping up? Um, see, we we have always been big bulls on India. That's why, like, I think it's the same story for you. We had opportunities to go outside the country, work outside the country. but we felt you are in the country at a stage where it's changing and changing very rapidly 97 to 2007 was a very different 10 years gfc happened yeah things came to a standstill 2007 to 2015 was a very different eight years the boom started and then for the next seven eight years it was an amazing seven eight years and now you can say it's a consolidation phase but as a country geopolitically you have stars aligning the population wise you have stars aligning affordability wise you have stars aligning and i would say from a pure underlying economics of creating businesses in india stars are aligning where you can actually build profitable businesses at very low price points yeah a lot of people miss that if you see some of the most amazing businesses built in this country are not businesses that charge whatever 5000 rupees per product right they are the 10 20 30 40 100 200 kind of products right you get specs in india yeah 1400 1500 rupees for a pair of two right and 10 million of them are sold and right? <laughs> can you just imagine bobby parker sells 1 million lens card sells is 10 million right correct because that's where the market explodes but it has to be done profitability which means that high gross margin the nascus high gross margin i would say is what gives you the ability to play the brand game and build a brand invest behind the business invest behind the people so i would say are we very bullish we are very bullish in india i think i would say the next decade if we play our cards right should be the decade for india right everybody saying morgan stanley saying and mckinsey saying goldman sachs is saying it their board is coming in next week for a board meeting global board is coming which is after 10 years nearly a decade after a decade or 12 years they're coming so a lot of people are recognizing what india is bringing to the table and i think there's a lot of geopolitically support as well so i think feels like a very good time it feels like a very good time to be an entrepreneur of course competition going to be higher than what it was 10 years back because more entrepreneurs are 
targeting the market but market is also much bigger and i think availability of funding is going to be a little tougher you always sell people raise money when you don't need it don't raise it when you need it it's much tougher correct so i think as long as you identify a core market focus on the end segment build a product which gives you good high gross margin and it's a large addressable market it should be a good story yeah now the rest is going to be on execution because execution is the fundamental proof of the pudding right you can build a great product but if you can't execute it whether it's a product whether it's a service it will not work so i think a lot of people are very swan building a good product they have to recognize if they are not good execution guys get somebody to can help so very very bullish i think that's the sorry long went in after that it must cover the india piece i mean whether it's, if you look at today i think we were discussing this earlier whether it's the combination of geopolitics which is sort of made india kind of front and center by exception not necessarily only by choice yeah. uh demographics you know the skill base of the the people you know around the just the various confluence of factors that are making india a fairly unique place to really build exciting businesses in and this is not just for indians themselves but also you know people who want to partake in the story yeah. right so i think hopefully uh, as you're saying in the next 10 years we will see this confluence really coming uh, to the fore and i mean as business builders ourselves we we think of ourselves as business builders and business enablers right um we hope we can be a partner of choice uh you know in specifically three areas number one in helping take good businesses and build them into great institutions that outlast us number two being a partner of choice in attracting retaining nurturing talent both within kedara as well as outside kedara because that's again a core ingredient in how india does and number 3 both for domestic capital as well as for you know uh, overseas capital the ability to provide you know uh, right risk reward in terms of returns and give them an avenue to finance the growth of india over the next many decades right that those are the three you know areas that we feel we can really truly play a role in uh, the india growth story amazing um sunish nishant i think this has been an absolute privilege privilege to host you and the uh, you know in the barber shop um also kind of to showcase to you the culture at bombay shaving company and and what we're doing but uh fascinating to kind of hear your insights on how you built out um uh, and congratulations on on such a wonderful story every time i kind of uh talk to our bankers or talk to people in the ecosystem about about kidara and uh just it it makes me very happy to see that you know the 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 generosity and positivity with which both of you just come across as human being also which i can now you know, <laughs> extrapolate to the to the institution that you represent thank you congratulations and again i was assuming that you for you guys also like it's been 10 11 12 years yes but it still feels like there's a lot new yes, yes, yes absolutely so um, it's been a privilege for us as well i think thank you for hosting us and great to know you personally i mean we heard a lot about you but just great to know you personally anantar ashtosh obviously know you well but good to put a face to the name and then getting to see bombay shaving company up close and personal <laughs> and really seeing the culture and the energy thank you thank you so on totally it's been a absolute pleasure and i think just enjoyed the conversation more than anything else i think just being 
upfront, honest, hearing from you as an entrepreneur what has worked also opens our eyes around some of the aspects that we would have missed. Yeah. And I think it's been a fascinating journey and, and a big, big congratulations. Taking on a big giant and what you are doing is phenomenal and makes us very proud to see some of this. And also we've opened up to new products that we didn't know. <laughs> yes. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And this was the product I was talking about. Ah, ah, I'll, I'll show it to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Come on, walk you guys out. I know you guys are getting great, but take care of yourselves.